The following is a conversation with Luis and Joao Batala, brothers and co-founders of Fermaz Library, which is an incredible platform for annotating papers. As they write on the Fermaz Library website, quote, Justice Pierre de Fermat scribbled his famous last theorem in the margins. Professional scientists, academics, and citizen scientists can annotate equations, figures, ideas, and write in the margins. Fermat's library is also a really good Twitter account to follow. I highly recommend it. They post little visual factoids and explorations that reveal the beauty of mathematics. I love it. Quick mention of our sponsors. Skiff, Simply Safe, Indeed, NetSuite, and Four Sigmatic. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say a few words about the dissemination of scientific ideas. I believe that all scientific articles should be freely accessible to the public. They currently are not. In one analysis I saw, more than 70% of published research articles are behind a paywall. In case you don't know, the funders of the research, whether that's government or industry, aren't the ones putting up the paywall. The journals are the ones putting up the paywall while using unpaid labor from researchers for the peer review process. Where is all that money from the paywall going? In this digital age, the costs here should be minimal. This cost can easily be covered through donation, advertisement, or public funding of science. The benefit versus the cost of all papers being free to read is obvious. And the fact that they're not free goes against everything science should stand for, which is the free dissemination of ideas that educate and inspire. Science cannot be a gated institution. The more people can freely learn and collaborate on ideas, the more problems we can solve in the world together. And the faster we can drive old ideas out and bring new, better ideas in. Science is beautiful and powerful, and its dissemination in this digital age should be free. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps, so if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It is the best way to support this podcast. I'm very picky with the sponsors we take on, so hopefully if you buy their stuff, you'll find value in it just as I have. This show is brought to you by Skiff, a new sponsor, an amazing sponsor. I really love these guys. I love the idea, I love the implementation. What Signal is to messaging, Skiff is to document writing and collaboration. It's like Google Docs, but with a lot more security features. I should confess that I'm very picky about the tools I use for productivity in general, but for creating documents, for creating notes. I'm a big user of Google Docs. I probably have over a thousand documents on there. I use also Evernote, Notion, Google Keep, I love that for note-taking. Anyway, I bring that up because I'm really picky on the usability front uh, of these tools. And that's the magic of Skiff. Not only is it secure, there's a lot of interesting things I could talk about for a long time, how they implemented, super interesting. But the actual writing and collaboration experience in it is just amazing. In my opinion, these are big words, it is better than Google Docs. But back to the security side of things. It's an end-to-end encrypted and decentralized collaboration platform built for privacy from the ground up. On Skiff, only you can decrypt the data. No one, not even Skiff, can ever see it. They are offering listeners of this podcast. This is truly special. They're offering you early access to their platform. 
you get to skip their over 60,000 person waiting list. Sign up for Skiff's beta at skiff.org slash lex. By the way, that's spelled S-K-I-F-F. I'm actually thinking of doing a fun collaborative document with a free for all to all the listeners of this podcast. So one document that anyone could edit on Skiff. That'd be pretty cool. What could possibly go wrong? Anyway, go to skiff.org slash lex to sign up for the early access. This show is also brought to you by Simply Safe, a home security company designed by Chad and Eleanor Lawrence to be simple and effective. I think the reason they want me to bring up the uh, the founder names is to show that there's actual real people with a real need, a real problem they want to solve and they want to solve it. I love companies like that. See a problem in the world and actually come up with a solution. It's not about making money first. It's about uh, solving the problem. And then you can really feel the sort of love for the design, for the features, for the implementation, for, for the whole thing when it's done like that. It takes 30 minutes to set up, super easy. I set it up in two places now. You can customize the system for your needs on simplysafe.com slash Lex. I think security has two components. One, it should be super easy to use, set up, operate, and two, it should be obviously reliable as the security system itself. Now, obviously, Simply Safe works as a security system. But the thing that makes it truly special, in my opinion, is just how easy it is to get the whole thing working. Anyway, go to simplysafe.com slash Lex to customize your system and get a free security camera plus the 60-day risk-free trial. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash Lex. This episode is brought to you by Indeed, a hiring website. I've used them as part of many hiring efforts I've done for the teams I've led. They have tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. On the podcast and the video side of things, I've actually been trying to hire a few different kinds of people to build up a team of people I can sort of work side to side with. Obviously, everyone should be really good at getting the thing they're supposed to do done, but also the personality, the flavor they bring to the team is really important. Whether it's the wild, crazy ones or the quiet, hardworking ones. I mean, having the full set of flavors on a team, I think especially when you're doing like creative type of things, which is what uh, a podcast or any kind of video on YouTube is, that's essential, that variety. But in order to select that good variety, you have to have a nice pool of candidates. And that's what Indeed is really good at doing. For the basic job that needs to get done, it'll give you a good pool of candidates. Right now, get a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash lex. Get it at indeed.com slash lex. Offer is valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Join 3 million businesses that use Indeed by going to indeed.com slash lex. This show is also brought to you by NetSuite. They basically do a bunch of stuff that QuickBooks can do and more. Plus, they do the stuff QuickBooks does and do it better. NetSuite allows you to manage financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and many more business-related details all in one place. I tend to think of a company as a single living organism, and it's fascinating to think of it in that way, like a complex living organism with different parts and what each of those parts are responsible for and what is the essential parts that make the organism what it is and what are the sort of uh, administrative parts that do the bulk of the working. It's like the DevOps or the people that run uh, the compute infrastructure 
for the living organism. It's really important to have that infrastructure in place and work well. And to do so, I think tools can really help. That's where NetSuite can really help. I should also say that special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to sign up today. Head to netsuite.com slash lex. That's special financing and netsuite.com slash lex. netsuite.com slash lex. This show is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, the maker of delicious mushroom coffee and plant-based protein. The coffee, in case you're wondering, does not taste like mushrooms. It is delicious. In fact, earlier today, I had an emergency when I woke up in the morning, all happy, with the sunshine shining through the windows, the birds chirping. Actually, I don't remember if the birds are chirping. It's Texas, so it's super hot. Probably <laughs> the birds were sweating and exhausted. But the point is, I wanted to make some coffee, and I realized I was out of coffee. And that was an emergency. That was a big problem. I didn't have any more Four Sigmatic. That's my failure, so I had to order more. But the uh, level of disappointment I felt was a reflection of how important coffee is in my life, how important that ritual of coffee is. It just starts the day right. It gives you that little warm kick that's a launching pad into the first few hours of deep work that I truly, truly appreciate. I mean, that's when my mind is sharpest, it can go the deepest. I just love it. And I somehow, I think a lot of us do connect coffee with that. So if you enjoy coffee like I do, you should definitely try out Four Sigmatic. It's one I uh, really enjoy. Anyway, get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles if you go to foursigmatic.com slash lex. That's foursigmatic.com slash lex. This is the Lex Friedman Podcast, and here is my conversation with Louise and Joao Batawa. Louise, you suggested an interesting idea. Imagine if most papers had a backstory section, the same way that they have an abstract. So knowing more about how the authors ended up working on a paper can be extremely insightful. And then you went on to give a backstory for the Feynman QED paper. Mm -hmm. This is all in a tweet, by the way. We're doing tweet analysis today. <laughs> how much of the human backstory do you think is important in understanding the idea itself that's presented in the paper or in general? I think this gives way more context to the work of, of scientists. I think people, a lot of people have this almost kind of romantic misconception that uh, the way a lot of scientists work is almost as the sum of eureka moments where all of a sudden they sit down and start writing two papers in a row and the papers are usually isolated. And when you actually look at it, it's the papers are you know chapters of a way more complex uh, story. And uh, the, the Feynman QED paper is a good example. So Feynman was actually going through a pretty dark phase before writing that paper. He, was, he lost enthusiasm with physics and doing physics problems. And there was one time when he was in the cafeteria of Cornell and he saw a guy that was throwing plates in the air and he noticed that there was when the plate was in the air, there were two movements there. The, the plate was wo wobbling, but he also noticed that the, the Cornell symbol was rotating. 
and he was able to figure out the equations of motions, uh, the equations of motions of th those uh, plates, and that uh, led him to kind of think a little bit about uh, electron orbits in relativity, which led to the paper of um, about quantum electrodynamics. So that kind of reignited uh, his interest in physics. And, and and ended up publishing the paper that led to the his Nobel Prize, basically. And I think it's it's there are a lot of really interesting backstories about papers that readers never get to know. For instance, we did a couple of months ago um, an AMA around uh, a paper, a pretty famous paper, the Gans paper with Ian Goodfellow. And so we did an AMA where everyone was could ask questions about the paper, and Ian was uh, responding to those questions. And he also he was also uh, telling the story of how he got the idea for that paper in a bar. Mm -hmm. So that was also an interesting and uh, a backstory. Uh, I also read a, a book uh, by um, Cedric Villani. Uh, these uh, Cedric Villani is this mathematician, the fields medalist, and in his book he tries to explain how he got from like. Um, a PhD student to the Fields Medal, and he tries to be as descriptive as possible about every single step how he got to the Fields Medal. And it's interesting also to see just the amount of random interactions and discussions with other researchers, sometimes over coffee, and how it led to like fundamental breakthroughs and some of his most important papers. So it, I think it's super interesting to have that context of, of the backstory. Well, the Ian Goodfellow story is kind of interesting, and perhaps that's true for Feynman as well. I don't know if it's romanticizing the thing, but it seems like just a few little insights and a little bit of work does most of the leap required. Do you have a sense that for a lot of the stuff you've looked at, just looking back through history, uh, it, it it wasn't necessarily the grind of like Andrew Wiles or the Fermat's Last Theorem, for example. Mm -hmm. It was more like a... A brilliant moment of insight. In fact, Ian Goodfellow has a kind of sadness to him almost mm. in that at that time in machine learning, like at that time, especially in uh, for GANs, you could code something up really quickly on a single machine mm -hmm. and almost do the invention, go from idea to uh, experimental validation in like a single night, a single person could do it. And now there's kind of a sadness that a lot of the breakthroughs you might have in machine learning kind of require large scale experiments. So it was almost like the early days. Uh, uh, so I wonder how many low hanging fruit there are in science and mathematics and even engineering where it's like, you could do that little experiment quickly. Like you have an insight in a bar. Why is it always a bar? But you have an insight <laughs> at a bar and then just implement and the world changes. It's it's a good point. I think it also depends a lot on the maturity of the field. When you look at a, f a field like mathematics, like it's a pretty mature field. Uh, a field like machine learning, um, it's it's growing pretty fast, and um, it's actually pretty pre pretty interesting. I, I I looked up like the number of new papers on archive with the keyword machine learning, and like fifty percent of those papers have been published on in the last twelve months. So. You can see just the sense five zero five zero fifty percent. So you can see the 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 magnitude of growth in that field. And so I think like as fields mature, like those types of of moments, I think naturally uh, are less frequent. Um, it's just a consequence of of that. The other point that is interesting about the backstory is that, is that it can really make it more memorable in a way. And and by making it more memorable, it's it kind of sediments the knowledge more. 
in your mind. I, I remember also reading the sort of the backstory to to Dijkstra's shortest path mm -hmm. algorithm, right? Where where he, he came up with it uh, essentially while he was sitting down at a, at a at a coffee shop in Amsterdam, and he and he came up with that algorithm over twenty minutes. And one interesting aspect is that he didn't have any pen or paper at mm -hmm. the time, and so he had to do it all in his mind. And so there's only so much complexity that you can handle if you're just thinking about it in your mind. And that, like when you think about the simplicity of Dijkstra's shortest path finding algorithm, it, it's, you know, knowing that backstory helps sediment that algorithm in your mind so that you don't forget about it as easily. It might be from you that I saw a meme about Dijkstra. It's like he's trying to solve it and he comes up with some kind of random path. And then it's like, my parents aren't home. And then he does, uh, he figures out the algorithm for the shortest path. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so I stride yeah. through words to convey memes, but it's hilarious. I don't know if it's in post that we construct stories that romanticize it. Apparently with Newton, there was no Apple. Especially when you're working on problems that have a physical manifestation mm -hmm. or a visual manifestation, it feels like the world could be an inspiration to you. So it doesn't have to be completely in um, on paper. Like you could be sitting at a bar and all of a sudden see something and a pattern will, will spark another pattern and you can visualize it and rethink a problem in a particular way. Uh, of course, you can also load the math that you have on paper and always carry that with you. So when you show up to the bar, some little inspiration could be the thing that changes it. Is there any other people, almost on the human side, whether it's physics with Feynman, uh, Dirac, Einstein, or computer science, Turing, anybody else? Any backstories that you remember that jump out? Because I'm also referring to not necessarily these stories where something magical happens, but these are personalities. They have big egos. Some of them are super friendly. Some of them are like self-obsessed. Some of them have anger issues. Some of them, how do I describe Feynman? But he appears to uh, have a appreciation of the beautiful in all its forms. He has a wit and a cleverness and a humor about him. So like, does that come into play in terms of the construction of the science? Well, I think you brought up Newton. Newton is a it's a good example also to think about his backstory because you know there's a certain backstory of Newton that people always talk about, but then there's a whole another aspect of him that is also a big part of the person that he was. But he, you know he was really into alchemy, right? Yeah. And that he spent a lot of time uh, thinking about that and writing about it, and he took it very seriously. He was really into Bible uh, interpretation, trying to predict things based on the Bible. And so there's also a whole backstory then, and you, of course you need to look at it in the context that uh, and the time that we're, when Newton lived. Um, but it but it adds to his personality, and it's important to also understand those aspects. That maybe you know, uh, not, people are people are not as proud to teach to little kids, but it's important. It was part of who he was, and and maybe without those, he who knows what what he would have done otherwise. So, well, the the cool thing about alchemy. I don't, I don't know how it was viewed at the time, but it almost like to me symbolizes dreaming of the impossible. Like most of the breakthrough ideas kind of seem impossible until they're actually done. It's like achieving human flight. Mm -hmm. It's not completely obvious to me that alchemy is impossible or like putting myself in the mindset of, of the time. 
uh, and perhaps even still, <laughs> every everything that uh, you know, some of the most incredible breakthroughs are, are, are would seem impossible. And I wonder the value of believing, almost like focusing and dreaming of the impossible, such that it is actually is possible in your mind, and that in itself manifests whether the accomplishing that goal or making progress in some unexpected direction. So alchemy almost symbolizes that for, for me. I distinctly remember having the same thought of thinking, you know, when I learned about atoms and, and that they have protons and electrons, I was like, okay, to make gold, you just take whatever has an, <laughs> yeah. an atomic weight below it and then yeah. shove another proton in there and then you have a bunch of gold. <laughs> so like, why don't people do that? <laughs> it seemed like conceptually is like, you know, this sounds feasible, huh, you might be able to do it. And you can actually, it's just very, very expensive. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So in a sense, we do have alchemy and and, it, and it maybe even back then it wasn't as crazy that he was so into it, but, but people just don't like to talk about that as much. Yeah, but Newton in general was a very interesting fellow. Anybody else come to mind? In terms of people that inspire you, mm -hmm. in terms of people that you just uh, are happy that they have once or still exist on this earth, I think, I mean, Freeman Dyson for me. Yeah, Freeman Dyson was, was, I've had a chance to actually exchange a couple of emails with him. He was probably one of the most humble scientists that I've ever met. And yeah. that had a, a, a big impact uh, on me. We were trying, we we're actually trying to convince him to annotate a paper on Fermat's library. And I sent him an email asking him um, if you could annotate a paper and his response was something like, I have very limited knowledge. I just know a couple of things about certain fields. I'm not sure if I'm qualified to do that. Yeah. That was his first response. And uh, and this was someone that should have won a Nobel Prize and worked on a bunch of different fields, um, did some really, really great work. And then just the interactions that I had with him, every time I asked him a couple of, of questions about his papers and uh, he always responded saying, I'm not here to answer your, your questions. I, I just want to open more questions. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that had a big, big impact on me. It was like just uh, uh, an example of an extremely humble uh, yet accomplished uh, scientist. And Feynman was also a, a big, a big inspiration in the sense that he was able to be, um, you know, again, extremely talented and and uh, scientist, but at the same time, socially, he was able to, to he was also really smart from a social perspective, uh, and he was able to interact with people. He was also a really good um, teacher and was also to, did a awesome work in terms of um, explaining physics to, to the masses and motivating and getting people interested in physics. And that for me was, was also a big inspiration. Yeah, I like the childlike curiosity of some of those folks, like you mentioned, Freeman. I've uh, Daniel Kahneman. I got a chance to meet and interact with some some of these truly special scientists. What makes them special is that even in uh, older age, there's still like there's still that fire of childlike curiosity that burns. Yeah. And uh, some of that is like not taking yourself so seriously that you think you figured it all out, but almost like thinking that you don't n know much of it. And that's like step one in having a great conversation or collaboration or exploring a scientific question. And it's cool how the very thing that probably earned people the Nobel Prize or, or work that's seminal in some way is the very thing that still burns even after 
uh, they've won the prize. It's cool to see. And they're rare humans, it seems. And to that point, I remember like the last email that I sent to Freeman Dyson was like in his last birthday. He was really into number theory and primes. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I took like a, a photo of him, picture, and then I turned that into like um, a, a giant prime number. <laughs> so I converted the picture into a, a bunch of one and eights, and then I, I moved some numbers around until it was a prime. Um, and then I sent him that. Also, oh, the the visual like it still looked like the picture. It's it was made up of a prime. That's it, tricky to do. It, it's that's it's, hard to do. It looks harder than it actually is. So the the way you do it is like you convert the darker regions into eights and the lighter regions in ones, mm -hmm. and then there's and then just keep flipping. Yeah, but <laughs> there are some, until. but there's like some primality tests that are cheaper from a computational uh, standpoint. Yes, uh, but the, it, what it tells you is is it excludes numbers that are not prime. Then you end up with a set of numbers that you don't know if they are prime or not. And then you run right. the full primality test on that. So you just have to keep iterating on that. And it was, it was, it's, it's funny because when he got the picture, he was like, how did you do that? He was super curious to, and then we got into the details. And again, this was, it was already 90, I think 92 or something. And that curiosity was still there. Um, <laughs> so you could really see that in, in some of these scientists. So could we talk about Fermat's library? Yeah, absolutely. What is it? What's the main goal? What's the dream? It is a platform for annotating papers in its essence, uh, right? And so academic papers can be one of the densest forms of content out there and, and generally pretty hard to understand at times. And, um, and the idea is that you can make them more accessible and easier to understand by adding these rich annotations to the side, right? And so we can just imagine a PDF view on your browser and then you have annotations on each side. And then when you click on them, a sidebar expands and then you have uh, you annotations that support LaTeX and Markdown. Uh, and so the idea is that you can say, explain a tougher part of a paper where there's a step that is not completely obvious um, or you can add more context to it. And then over time, papers can become easier and, and easier to understand and can evolve in a way. But it really came from myself, Luis, and two other friends. We've been, we've had this this long-running habit of of kind of running a journal club amongst us. We come from different backgrounds, right? I, I studied CS, we studied physics, and so we'd read papers and present them to each other, and uh, and then we tried to bring some of that online, and that's 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 when we decided to 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 build Fermat's library. Um, and then over time, it kind of grew into into something uh, with with a broader goal. Uh, and really what we're trying to do is trying to help uh, move science in the, in the, the right direction. Um, that's really the ultimate goal and, and where we want to take it now. So there's a lot to be said. So first of all, for people who haven't seen it, it the, the interface is exceptionally well done. That's like execution is really important here. Absolutely. The other thing is just to mention for a large number of people apparently, which is new to me, don't know what LaTeX is. So it's spelled like LaTeX, so be careful Googling it if you haven't before. Uh, it's, uh, uh, sorry, I don't even know the correct terminology. Typesetting language? It's a typesetting language where it's you're basically program writing a program that then generates something that looks, from a typography perspective, beautiful. Absolutely. And uh, so a lot of academics use it to write papers. I, I think there's 
like a bunch of communities that use it to write papers. I would say it's mathematics, physics, mm -hmm. computer science. Yeah, that's yeah. Then that's you, it. You, that's the, the main. because I'm collaborating currently on a paper with uh, two neuroscientists from Stanford, and they don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, so I'm using uh, Microsoft Word and uh, Mendeley, mm. and like all of those kinds of things, and it's and I'm being very Zen like about about the whole process, but it's fascinating. It's yeah. a little heartbreaking actually, because. Um, it actually, it's it's funny to say, but, uh, and we'll talk about open science, actually the bigger mission behind For Mars Library is like really opening up the world of science to everybody. Is these silly two facts of like, one community uses LaTeX and another uses Word is actually a barrier between them. That's like, it's like boring and practical in a sense, but it makes it very difficult to collaborate. Just on that, like I think that if there are some people that should have received like a Nobel Prize that but will never get it, yeah. and I think one of those is like Donald Knuth because yeah. of tech and latex, and then um, because it had a huge impact in terms of like just uh, making it easier for uh, researchers to put their content out there, like making it uniform as much as possible. Oh, you mean uh, like a Nobel Peace Prize? For maybe <laughs> maybe a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Maybe a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I, I, I think so. I mean, he at a very young age got the Turing Award for his work in algorithms and so on. So, yeah. like an incredibly, like when I, I think it's in, it might be even the sixties, but I think it's the seventies. That so when he was really young, and then he went on to do like incredible work with his book and uh, yeah, with with tech that people don't know. And and going back just one uh, on the reason why we, we ended up, because I think this is, this is interesting, the reason why we ended up using the name Fermat's Library, this was because of um, Fermat's Last Theorem. And Fermat's Last Theorem is actually a funny story. Uh, so Pierre de Fermat, he, he was like a lawyer and he, he, he wrote like on a book um, that he had a solution to Fermat's Last Theorem, which, um, but that didn't fit the margin of that book. Mm -hmm. And so for my theorem basically st states that there's no solution. If you have uh, uh, integers a, b, and c, there's no solution to a to the power of n plus b to the power of n equals to c to the power of n if n is bigger than two. So there's, there's, there's no solutions. And he said that, and that problem remained open for almost 300 years, I believe. And a lot of the most famous mathematicians tried to tackle that problem. No one was able to figure that, that out until Andrew Wiles, uh, I think was in, in the 90s, uh, was able to publish the solution, which was, I, I believe, almost 300 pages long. And so it's kind of an anecdote that, you know, there's a lot of, of knowledge and uh, insights that can be trapped in the margins. That you, and there's a lot of potential energy that you can release <laughs> if you actually um, spend some time, time trying to digest uh, that. And that was the, the the origin story for for the name. Yeah, if you can share the contents of the margins with the world, exactly. that could inspire a, a solution or a communication that then leads to a solution. But, but and, and if you think about papers, like papers are, as, as Joan was saying, probably one of the densest pieces of, of text that any human can read. And you have these researchers, like some of the brightest minds in, in these fields, working on like new discoveries and publishing these work on journals 
that are imposing them restrictions in terms of the number of pages that they can have to explain a new scientific breakthrough. And so at the end of the day, papers are not optimized for clarity and for a proper explanation of, of that content because there are so many restrictions. And so there's, uh, as, as I mentioned, there's a lot of potential energy that can be freed if you actually try to digest a lot of the contents of, of papers. Can you explain some of the other things? So margins, librarian, journal club. So journal club is what a lot of people know us for, uh, where we every week we release an annotated paper and in all sorts of different fields, physics, CS, math. Margins is kind of the same software that we use to, to run the journal club and to host the annotations, but we've made that available for free to anybody that wants to use it. And so folks use it at, at universities and and um, for running journal clubs. Um, and, and so we've just made that freely available. And then Librarian is a browser extension that we developed that is sort of an overlay on top of Archive. So it's about bringing some of the same functionality around comments, plus adding some extra uh, niceties to, to Archive, like being able to very easily extract the references of a paper that you're looking at or being able to extract the bib tech in order to cite that paper yourself. Um, so it's an overlay on top of archive. The idea is that you can have that commenting interface without having to leave archive. It's kind of incredible. I didn't know about it. And once I've learned of it, it's like, holy shit. Why isn't it mo more popular, given how popular archive is? Like everybody should be using it. Archive sucks in terms of its interface. <laughs> so or it's, uh, let me rephrase that, it's limited yeah. <laughs> in terms of its interface. Archive is a, is a pretty incredible project. Right? And it is, in, in a way, it's, it, you know, it, it, the growth has been completely linear over time. If you look at like number of papers published on archive, like, you know, it's just been, it's pretty much a straight line for the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Especially for, you know, for, like if you're coming from a startup background and then you are trying to do archive, uh, you'd probably try like all sorts of growth acts and like try to to then maybe like have paid features and things like that. And, and that would kind of maybe ruin it. And so there's there's a subtle balance there, yeah. and I don't know what, what what aspects you can change about it. And yeah, for s some tools in science, it just takes time for them yeah. to to grow. Archive is just turned thirty, I believe. Yeah, and for for people that don't know, Archive is this kind of online repository where people put uh, preprints, which are versions of the papers, before they actually make it to yeah. journals. A R XIV exactly. for people exactly. who don't know. And it's actually a really vibrant place to publish your papers in, in the aforementioned uh, communities of mathematics, exactly. physics, and computer science. It started with mathematics and physics, and then he, over the, the, the last 30 years it evolved and now. Actually, computer computer science now, it's it's a more popular category than, than physics and math on archive. And there's also which I don't know very much about, like a biology, medical version of that. Is bioarchive, bio yeah, bioarchive. Um, it's, More recent. It's, um, it's interesting because if you look at like these um, platforms for preprints, they are they actually play a super important role because for instance, if, if you look at a category like math, for some papers in math, it might take close to three years after you click upload paper on the journal website and the paper gets published on the website of the journal. So this is the, literally the, the longest upload period on the internet. Um, and during those three years, like it's, it's 
you know, it, that content is just, you know, locked. And so it's, it, that's why it's so important for people to have websites like Archive so that you can share that before it goes to the journal with the rest of the world. That was actually on Archive that uh, Perelman published the, the three papers that led to the proof of the Poincaré conjecture. And then you have other fields like machine learning, for instance, where the, the field is evolving at such a high rate that people don't even wait before the papers go to journals, before they start working on top of those papers. So they publish them on archive, then other people see them, they start working on that. Uh, and archive did a really good job at like building that core platform to host papers. But I, I think there's a really, really big opportunity in building more features on top of that platform, apart, yeah. apart from just hosting papers. So collaboration, annotations, and uh, like having other things apart from, from papers like code um, and, and other things. Because uh, for instance, in the field like machine learning, there's a really big, you know, as, as I mentioned, people start working on, on, on top of preprints and they are assuming that that, that preprint is correct but you really need a way, for instance, to maybe not, it's not peer review, but distinguish what is good work from bad work on archive. How do you do that? So uh, like a commenting interface like librarian, it's useful for that so that you can distinguish that um, at, 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 in a field that is growing so fast as machine learning. And, um, and then you have uh, platforms that focus, for instance, on, on just biology. Bioarchive is a good example. Um, Bioarchive is also super interesting because there, there's actually an interesting experiment that was run in the 60s. So in the 60s, the NIH um, supported this, pro this, um, this experiment called the Information Exchange Group, which at the time was a way for researchers to share biology preprints via mail or using libraries. And that project in the 1960s got canceled six years after it started. And it, it was due to intense pressure from the journals to kill that project because they, they were fearing a comp competition uh, from, from the preprints uh, for, for the journal industry. Creek uh, was also uh, was one of the famous scientists that opposed to, to the uh, information exchange group. And it's interesting because right now, if you analyze the number of biology papers that uh, appear first as preprints, it's only 2% of the papers. And it, this was almost 50, almost 50 years after that first experiment. So you can see like that pressure from the journals to cancel that uh, initial version of a preprint repo had a tremendous impact on, on, on the number of papers that are showing up in biology as preprints. So it delayed a lot that, uh, that revolution. And, um, but now platforms like BioArchive are doing that work, but there's still a lot of room for growth there. And I think it's super important because those are the papers that are open that everyone can read. Okay, so, but if we just look at the entire process of science as a big system, can we just talk about how it can be revolutionized? So. You have an idea, uh, depending on the field, you wanna make that idea concrete, you wanna run a few experiments in computer science, there might be some code, mm -hmm. there'd be a data set uh, for you know uh, some of the more sort of biology, psychology, you, you might be collecting the data set, that's called you know a study, <laughs> right? So, uh, so it's, that's part of that, that's part of the methodology. And so you are putting all that into a paper form and then you have some results and then you, you submit that to a place for review. 
through the peer review process. And there's a process where, how would you summarize the peer review process? But it's it's really just like a handful of people look over your paper and comment and based on that decide whether your paper is good or not. So there's a whole broken nature to it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I love the peer review process when I buy stuff on Amazon, be, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> for like uh, the commenting system, whatever that is. So, okay, mm-hmm. so there's a, bu- a bunch of possibilities for revolutions there. And then there's the other side, which is the collaborative aspect of the science, which is people annotating, people commenting, sort of the low effort mm-hmm. collaboration, which is a comment Sometimes, as you've talked about, a comment can change everything, but, you know, or a higher effort collaboration, like more like maybe annotations or even like contributing to the paper. You can think of like a collaborative updating of the paper over Mm -hmm. time. So there's all these possibilities for doing things uh, better than they've been done. Can we talk about some ideas in this space? Some ideas that you're working on, mm-hmm. some ideas that uh, you're not yet working on, but should be revolutionized. Because it does seem that archive and like uh, open review, for example, are like the Craigslist of science. <laughs> like, like y- yeah, okay, it's, I'm very g- grateful that we have it, but it just feels like it's like, 10 to 20 years, like it doesn't feel like that's a feature. Mm. The simplicity of it is a feature. Mm. It feels like it's a it's a bug. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But then again, the, the pushback there is uh, Wikipedia has the same kind of simplicity to it. And it seems to work exceptionally well uh, yeah. in, in the crowdsourcing aspect of it. So I'm, sorry, that's this yeah. a bunch of stuff <laughs> thrown on the, on the table. Let's just pick on random things that we can talk about. Wikipedia, you know, for me, it's the cosmological constant of the internet. It's, mm-hmm. I think we are lucky to live in the parallel universe where Wikipedia exists. Yes. Because if, if someone had pitched me Wikipedia, like a publicly edited uh, encyclopedia, like a couple of years ago, like it would be, I don't know how many people would have said that that would have survived. I mean, it makes almost no sense. It's like having a Google Doc that everybody on the internet can edit yeah. and like that'll be like the most reliable source. For, for knowledge. On, I don't know how many, but hundreds of thousands of topics. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> insane. It's insane. And like you have, and then you have users, like there's one, a single user that edited one third of the articles on Wikipedia. So you have these really, really big power users. There are yeah. a, a substantial part of like what makes Wikipedia uh, um, successful. And so like no one would have ever imagined that uh, that could happen. Um, and so that that's that's one thing I, I completely agree with what you just said. I also so, sorry to interrupt briefly. Maybe let's inject that into the discussion of everything else. I also believe I've seen that with Stack Overflow that one individual or a small collection of individuals contribute or revolutionize most of the community. Like if you create a really powerful system for archive mm-hmm. for, or like open review, it made it really easy and uh, compelling. Mm-hmm. and exciting for one person who's an like a 10x contributor to do their thing that's going to change everything it seems like that was the mechanism that changed everything for wikipedia and that's the mechanism that changed everything for stack overflow yeah. is gamifying or making it exciting or just making it fun or mm-hmm. pleasant or fulfilling in some way for those people who are insane enough to like answer thousands of questions or 
uh, write thousands of factoids and like research them and check them, all those kinds of things, or read thousands of papers. Yeah. No, Stack Overflow is another great example of that. And and it's just, and, and those are both two incredibly productive communities that generate a ton of value and, and, and capture almost none of it, right? And it's, and it, they, in, a, in a way, it's almost like counter, um, it, it's very counterintuitive that, that, that people, that these communities would exist and, and thrive. Um, and, and it's really hard to, you, you, there aren't that many communities like that. So how do we do that for science? For science. Do you have ideas there? Like what, what are the biggest problems that you see? You're working on some of them. Look, just on that, there are a couple of really interesting experiments that people are running. An, an example would be like the polymath projects. So this is a so, kind of a social experiment that was uh, created by Tim Gowers, Fields, Fields Medalist. And his idea was to try to prove that, is it possible to do mathematics in a massively collaborative way on the internet? So he, he decided to pick a couple of problems and uh, test that. And they found out that it, it actually it is possible for a specific types of problems, uh, namely problems that you're able to break down in, in little pieces and go step by step. You might need, as, as with open source, you might need people that are just kind of reorganizing the, the house every once in a while. And then, you know, people throw a bunch of ideas and then, you know, you make some progress, then you reorganize, you reframe the problem, you go step by step. But they were, were actually able to prove that it is possible to to uh, collaborate online um, and, do, and do progress in terms of mathematics. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm confident that there are other avenues that could be explored here. Can we talk about peer review, for example? Absolutely. I, I think like in, in terms of the peer review, I think we it's it's important to look at the bigger picture here of like of what this scientific the scientific publishing ecosystem looks like. Because for me, there there are a lot of things that are wrong about that entire process. So if you look at for instance at the what um, publishing means in like a a, a traditional journal, you have uh, journals that pay um, authors for their articles and then they might pay like reviewers to um, review those articles and finally they pay people to um, or distributors to distribute the content in a, in the scientific publishing world you have scientists that are usually backed by government grants they are giving away their work for free in the form of papers and then you have other scientists that are reviewing their work this process is known as the peer review process, again, for free. And then finally, we have um, government-backed universities and libraries that are buying back all those, all that work so that other scientists can, can read. So this is, for me, it's bizarre. You have the government that is funding the research, it's paying the salaries of the scientists, it's paying the salaries of the reviewers, and it's buying back all that uh, product of their work, again. Um, and I think the problem with this system, and it's why it's, why it's so difficult to, to break this suboptimal equilibrium, is because of, of the way academia works right now and the way you can progress in, in your academic life. Mm -hmm. um, and so in a lot of fields, the, the competition in academia is, is really insane. So you have hundreds of PhD students, they are um, trying to get to a, a professor position and, and it's hyper competitive. And the only way for you to get there 
is if you publish papers, ideally in journals with a high impact factor. In computer science, it's all it's often conferences are also very prestigious or actually more prestigious than journals now. Okay, so, interesting. So that's the one discipline where, I mean, that has to do with the thing we've discussed uh, in terms of the, how quickly the field turns around. But like uh, NeurIPS, CVPR, those conferences are more prestigious or at the very least as prestigious as the journals. The, the, but, the yeah, journals. The, but doesn't matter, the process is what it is. And 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 so with the, the, the so for people that don't know, how, the impact factor of a journal is basically the average number of citations that a paper yeah. would get if it gets published on that journal. But so um, you can really think that um, the problem with the, the impact factor is that it's a way to turn papers into accounting units. And, and, and let me unpack this because it's, the impact factor is almost like a nobility title. So pa because papers are born with impact even before anyone reads them. So the researchers, they don't have the incentive to care about if this paper is gonna have a long-term impact on, on, on the world. What they care, their goal, their end goal is the paper to get published. Yes. So that they get that value up front. So for me, that that is one of the problems of of that, and that really creates a tyranny of of metrics, because at the end of the day, if you are a dean, what you want to hire is like people, researchers that publish papers on journals with high impact factors, because that will increase the ranking of your university and will allow you to charge more for tuition, so on and so forth, and um and and that that especially when you are in super competitive areas, you know that people will try to gamify that system and, and misconduct starts showing up. Um, there's a, um, a really interesting book on this topic called uh, Gaming the Metrics. It's a book by a researcher called uh, Mario Biagioli. It goes a lot into like how these, uh, the impact factor and metrics affect science negatively. And it's interesting to think, especially in terms of citations, if you look at the early work of like looking at citations, there was a lot of work that was done by a guy called Eugene Garfield. And this guy, um, the early work in terms of citation, they wanted to use, they wanted to use citations as from a, a descriptive point of view. Mm -hmm. So what they wanted to, to create was a map and and that map would create a, a visual representation of in, of influence. So citations would be links between papers, and the, the, ideally, what they would show they would represent is that you read someone else's paper and it had an impact on your research. They weren't supposed to be counted. I think the, this inspired like Larry and Sergey's exactly uh, work, and, right for Google. Exactly, I, I think they even mentioned that. But what happens is like as you start counting citations, you create a market. And, and the same way, like, and this was the, the work of e Eugene Garfield was a big inspiration for Larry and Sergey for the page rank algorithm that, um, you know, led to the creation of, of Google. Mm -hmm. And they even recognized that. And, and if you think about it, it's like the same way there's a, a gigantic market for search engine optimization, uh, SEO, where people try to optimize, you know, the, the page rank and how I, the, a, a web page will rank on Google the same will happen for papers. People will try to optimize like their, their uh, the, the impact factors and the citations that they get. And that um, creates a really big problem. And if it's super interesting to actually analyze the, if you look at the distribution of, of the high impact, the impact factors of journals, you have like nature with, uh, nature I believe is like in the low 40s. And then you have, I believe science is high 30s. And then you have a really uh, um, um, a good set of, 
good journals that will fall between 10 and 30. And then you have a gigantic tail of of journals that have uh, impact factor below two. Mm -hmm. And you can really see two economies here. You see the, the, um, the universities that are maybe less prestigious, less known, that where the faculty are pressured to just publish papers, regardless of the journal. What I want to do is increase the ranking of my university. And so they end up publishing as many papers as, as they, they can in like journals with low impact factor. And unfortunately, this is, uh, represents a lot of, of, of the global South. Mm-hmm. And then you have the luxury good economy. So for instance, for and there are also problems here in the luxury good economy. So if you look at the journal like Nature, so with an impact factor of like in the low 40s, there's no way that you're going to be able to sustain that level of impact factor by just grabbing the attention of scientists. So what, what I mean by that is like for, for the journals, the articles that get published in Nature, they need to be New York Times great. So they need to make it to the, you know, to the, to the big media. They need to be captured by the big media, yes. big media. And because that's the only way for you to capture enough attention to sustain that level of citations. Yes. And that, of course, creates problems because people then will try to, again, gamify the system and have like titles or abstracts right. or that are bigger, claim, make claims that are bigger than what is actually can be, um, you know, sustained by by the data or the the content of the paper, and you'll have clickbait titles or clickbait uh, abstracts. And again, this is all a consequence of metrics and uh, scienceometrics. And and this is a very dangerous cycle that I think it's very hard to break, but it's happening in academia in a lot of fields right now. Is it fundamentally the existence of metrics, or the metrics just need to be significantly improved? Because uh... Like I said, the metrics used for Amazon for purchasing, I don't know, computer parts is pretty damn good in terms of selecting which are the good ones, which are not. Mm-hmm. In that same way, if, if, if we had an Amazon type of review system in the space of ideas, in the space of science, it feels like that those metrics would be a little bit better. Sort of mm-hmm. when it's um, when it's significantly more open to the crowdsourced nature of the internet, of the of the scientific internet. Meaning as opposed to, like my biggest problem with peer review has always been that it's like five, six, seven people, usually even mm-hmm. less. And it's often, nobody's incentivized to do a good job in the whole process. Meaning it's anonymous mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't incentivize, like doesn't gamify or incentivize great work. And also it doesn't necessarily have to be anonymous. Like there there has to be, um, the entire system is, um, doesn't encourage actual sort of rigorous review. For example, like open review Mm -hmm. does kind of incentivize that kind of process of collaborative review but it's also imperfect. But it just feels like the thing that Amazon has, which is like thousands of people contributing their reviews to a product, it feels like that could be applied to science, where uh, the same kind of thing you're doing with Fermat's library, but doing at a scale that's much larger. It feels like that should be possible, given the number of grad students, Mm -hmm. given the number of, 
general public that's getting, like, for example, I personally, as a person who got an education in, in mathematics and computer science, like, uh, I can I can be a quote unquote like reviewer on a lot bigger set of things than than is my exact uh, expertise. Mm -hmm. If I'm one of thousands of reviewers, if I'm the only reviewer, one of five, then I better be like an expert in the thing. But if if I uh, and I've learned this with COVID, which is like you can just use your basic skills as a data analyst as a mm -hmm. and to contribute to the review process and a particular little aspect of a paper and be able to comment be able to sort of uh draw in some references that challenge the ideas presented or to enrich the ideas that are presented or you know I, I, it just feels like crowdsourcing mm -hmm. the review process would be able to allow you to have metrics mm -hmm in terms of how good a paper is that are much better representative of its actual impact in the world, of its actual value to the world, as opposed to some kind of arbitrary gamified um, version of its impact. I, I agree with that. I, I think we there's definitely the possibility, at least for more resilient, a more resilient system than what we have today. And that's, I think that's kind of what you're describing, Alex. And and I, I mean, to an extent, we, we kind of have like a, a little bit of a, uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle. When you pick a metric, as soon as you do it, then maybe it works as a good heuristic for for a short amount of time. But soon enough, people would start gamifying, and uh, yeah. uh, but uh, but then you can definitely have metrics that are more resilient to, to gamification, and and they'll work as a better heuristic to to try to push you in the in the the best direction. Um, but I guess the underlying problem you're saying is uh, there's a shortage of positions in academia. That's a big problem for me. Yeah, and and that and so they're going to be constantly gamifying the metrics. Yeah. It's a bit of a zero sum. Game. It's very competitive. It's what it's a very competitive field, and and that's what usually happens in very competitive uh, fields. Yeah, yeah. But I think some of like the peer review problems, like scale, helps. I think, and and it's interesting to look at like what you're mentioning, breaking it down maybe in, in like smaller parts and having more people jumping in. Um, but th th this is definitely uh, a problem, and and the peer review problem, as I mentioned, is is correlated with the problem of like academic career progression, and it's all intertwined. And it's what that's why I think it's so hard to to break it. Um, there are like a couple of really interesting things that are being done right now. There are a couple of, for instance, journals that are overlay journals on top of um, platforms like Archive and uh, BioArchive that want to remove like the more traditional journals from the equation. So essentially a journal is just a collection of links to papers. And mm -hmm. and um, and what they are trying to do is like removing that middleman and trying to, to make the review process a little bit more transparent. Um, and, and and not charging universities like uh, there's there's a couple of there are a couple of more famous um, ones. There's one discrete analysis in mathematics. There's one uh, called the Quantum Journal, which we are actually working with them. We have a partnership with them for the papers that get published in Quantum Journal. They also get the annotations on formats. Um, and they are doing pretty well. They've been able to grow substantially. The problem there is getting to critical mass. So it's, again, convincing the researchers and especially the young researchers that need need that impact factor, need th those publications to have citations to not publish on the traditional journal and go on an open journal 
and, and publish their work there. There, I think there are a couple of really high profiled scientists of people like Tim Gowers. They are trying to incentivize like famous scientists that already have tenure and th that don't need that to publish that to increase the reputation of those journals so that other maybe younger scientists can start publishing on on those as well. And so they can try to break that vicious cycle of of um, the more traditional journals. I mean, another possible way to break this cycle is to like raise public awareness and just by force, like ban paid journals. Like mm -hmm. what exactly are they contributing to the world? <laughs> like basically making it illegal to, uh, Forget the fact that it's mostly federally funded. So mm -hmm. that's that's a super ugly picture too. But like, why should knowledge be so expensive? Hmm. Like where everyone is working for the public good and then there's these gatekeepers that, you know, most people can't read most papers mm -hmm. without having to pay money. And that's, that doesn't make any sense. That's like that, that should be illegal. I mean, that's what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, for instance, right, I, I went to school here in the US, we studied in Europe and uh, you would sit, like you'd ask me all the time to download papers and send it to him because he just couldn't get it. And like papers that he needed for his research. And so- But he's this, a student, like he's- Yeah, like, he's a I grad mean, student. He was a grad student, but that, you know, I'm even referring to just regular people. Oh yeah, okay, that too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, during 2020, because of COVID, a lot of journals put down the mm -hmm. walls for certain kind of coronavirus related uh -huh. papers. But like that just gave me an indication that like this should be done for everything. It's 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 absurd. Like people should be outraged that there's these gates because so the moment you dissolve the journals, then there will be an opportunity for startups to uh, build stuff on top of archive. It'd be an opportunity for like, for Moss Library to step up, to scale up mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. something much even larger. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the original dream of uh, Google, which I've always admired, which is make the world's information accessible. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's interesting that Google hasn't, uh, maybe you guys can correct me, but they have uh, put together Google Scholar, which mm -hmm. is incredible, but they, and they've the, the scanning of books, but they haven't really tried to make science accessible. Mm -hmm. in the in the in the following way like besides doing google scholar they haven't like delved into the papers right mm -hmm. like which they, is especially curious given what Louise was saying right that it's kind of in their genesis there's yes. this like you know research that was very connected with how papers reference each other and like building a, ne a network out of that interesting enough like google i think there was a there was not intended google plus was like the google social network that yes. got canceled was used by a lot of researchers yes it was uh with what i think was a, just a you know side kind of a side effect but and a lot of people ended up migrating to twitter but it was not on purpose but yeah i agree with you like they haven't um gone past the uh, google scholar and well I don't know why. that said google scholar is incredible for yeah. people who are not familiar it's one of the best um, aggregation of all the scientific work that's out there and especially the network that connects all of them, what sites, what, and also trying to aggregate all of the versions of the papers that are available there and trying to merge them in a way that uh, one particular work, even though it's available in a bunch of places, counts as, you know, like a central hub of what that work is across the multiple versions. But that almost seems like a s fun 
pet mm-hmm. project of a couple of engineers within <laughs> within sure. Google, as opposed to a serious effort to make the world's science accessible. But but going back to just the the, the journals when you're talking about that, Lex, I th- I believe that in that front, I think we might be past the the event horizon. So I think the 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 model, the business model for the journals, you know, doesn't make sense. They are a middle layer that is not adding a lot of value. And you see a lot of motions, whereas like in Europe, a lot of the, the papers that are get are funded by uh, the European Union, they will have to be um, uh, open to the public. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of- Bill like, Gates too, like the, the, yeah. the, what the Gates Foundation funds, like they, they demand that, it, that, it, that it's, uh, accessible to, to everybody. Oh, interesting. So I think it's it's a question of time before that that wall kind of falls. And and that is going to open a lot of possibilities. Um because you know imagine if if you had like the layer of like that gigantic layer of papers all available online, um you know that unlocks a lot of potential as a platform for people to build things on top of that. But I think to what you're saying, it is weird like you can literally go and listen to any song that was ever made uh, on your phone, right? You open Spotify and you might not even pay for it. You might be on the free version and you can listen to any song that was ever made pretty much. But there's like, you you don't have access to uh, you know, a huge percentage of academic papers, which is just like this fundamental knowledge that we're all funding, but you as an individual don't have access to it. And, and somehow, you know, like the problem for music got solved uh, but yeah. for papers, it's still like... It's just not yet. It could be ad-supported, all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And that hopefully that would change the way we do science. That's the the most exciting thing for me is uh, especially once I started like making videos and this silly podcast thing, I started to realize like that if you want to do science, one of the most effective ways is to do a, like couple the paper with a set of YouTube videos like explaining it like yeah that also seems like there's a lot of room for disruption there what is the paper 2.0 going to look like right. i think like latex and the pdf seems like if you it's interesting if you look at the first paper that got published in nature and if you look at the paper that got published in nature today if you look at the two side by side they are fundamentally the same and uh, even though like the paper that gets published today you know you get even even code like right now people put like code like on on a pdf like and there are so many things that are related to papers today you know you use you have data you have code um you might need videos to to better explain the concepts so it it's it i I think for me it's natural that there's going to be also an evolution there that papers are not going to be just the static pdfs or latex there's going to be a next uh, a next interface so in academia, a lot of things that are judged, you're judged by is often quantity, not quality. I I wonder if there's a opportunity to have like, I tend to judge people by the best work they've ever done as opposed to, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's a possibility for that to encourage sort of um, focusing on the quality and not necessarily in paper form, but maybe a subset of a paper, a subset of idea, almost even a blog post or an experiment. Mm-hmm. Like, why does it have to be published in a journal yeah. to be legitimate? And and it's interesting that you mentioned that. I also think like, yeah, it's why, all, why, why is that the only format? Why can't a blog post or 
we were even experimenting experimenting with these uh, a few months ago. Where c- can you actually like publish something uh, um, or um, like a new scientific breakthrough or um, or something that you've discovered in the form of like a set of tweets, yeah. a Twitter thread? Yeah. Why can't that be possible? And um, we were experimenting with that idea. Uh, we even, um, yeah, we r- ran a couple of, of, like some people submitted a couple of those, like I think the limit was three or four tweets. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a new way to look at a, a, you know, a proof or something, but uh, I think it, it just serves to show that there should be other ways to publish yes. like scientific discoveries that don't fit the paper format. Well, but so even with the Twitter thread, it would be, it would be nice to have some mechanism of formalizing it and making it stat- making it into an NFT. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> like a, a concrete thing that you can reference with a link that's yeah. unique. Well, uh, yeah. Because, um, I mean, everything we've been saying, all of that, uh, w- while being true, it's also true that the constraints and the formalism of a paper works well. It like forces you Constraints forces you to narrow down your mm-hmm. thing and and uh, literally put it on paper, but you know, I agree. Uh, make concrete, and that's why. I mean, it's not broken; it just could be better, and that's the main idea. I think there's something about writing, whether it's a blog post or Twitter thread or a paper, that's really nice to to concretize a particular little idea that they can then be referenced by other ideas then it can be built on top of with other ideas mm-hmm. so uh let me ask you've read quite a few papers you've uh annotated quite a few papers let's talk about the process itself how do you advise people read papers or maybe you want to broaden it beyond just papers but just read concrete pieces of information to understand the insights that lay within? I would say for paper specifically, I would, I would bring back kind of what Louise was talking about is, is that it's important to keep in mind that papers are not optimized for ease of understanding. And so, right, they, there's all sorts of restrictions in size and format and, and, and language that they can use. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And so that if you're struggling to read a paper, doesn't that might not mean that the underlying material is actually that hard and so so that's definitely something that that especially for us that we 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 read papers and most of the times we'll read papers that are completely outside of our of our comfort zone i guess and and, and so it'd be completely new areas to us um so i always try to to keep that in mind so there's usually a certain kind of structure like abstract introduction mm-hmm. there's methodology uh, depending on the community and so on, is there something about the process of like how to read it, whether you want to skim it to try to find the parts that are easy to understand or not, uh, reading it multiple times? Mm-hmm. Is, is there any kind of hacks that you can comment on? I remember like Feynman had this, this kind of hack when he was reading papers where he would basically, um, he would I think I believe he would read the conclusion of the paper and we would try to just um, see if he would be able to figure out how to get to the conclusion in like a couple of minutes by himself. And um, and he would read pa- a lot of papers that way. 
And I think Fermi also did that almost. And, and Fermi was known for doing a lot of back of the envelope calculations. So he was a master at uh, doing that. Um, and, and in terms of like, uh, especially when, uh, when reading a paper, I think a lot of times people might feel discouraged about the first time you read it, you, you know, it's very hard to grasp or you, you don't understand a, a huge fraction of the paper. And I think it's having read a lot of papers in my life, I think I've in peace with like the fact that you might spend hours where you're just reading a paper and jumping from paper to paper, reading citations and um, like your level of understanding of uh, sometimes of the paper is very close to 0%. And all, all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of makes sense and, and, and in your mind. And then, you know, you have this quantum jump where all of a sudden you, you, you understand the, the big picture of the paper. And uh, I, I, and, and this is an exercise that I have to, when reading papers and especially like more complex papers, like, okay, you don't understand because you're just going through the process and just keep going. And like, and it, it's, it might feel super chaotic, especially if you're jumping from reference to reference, you know, you might end up with like 20 tabs open and you're reading a ton of other papers, but it's just trusting that process that at the end, like you'll find light. Um, and I think for me, that's a, a good framework when reading a paper, it's hard because you know you might end up spending a lot of time and you it looks like you're lost but uh but that's the process to actually um you know understand what they're talking about in a paper yeah i think that process i enjoy i've found a lot of value in the process especially for things outside my field of reading a lot of related work sections and kind of uh -huh. go going down that path of getting a big context of the field because what's especially when they're well written there's opinions injected into the related work. <laughs> like what work is important, what is not. And if you read multiple related work sections that cite or don't cite each other, like the papers, uh, you, you get a sense of where the field, where the tensions of the field are, where the, where the field is striving. And that helps you put into context, like whether the work is radical, whether it's overselling it, Itself, whether it's underselling itself, all those things, uh, and on, added on top of that, I find that often the related work section is the most kind of accessible and readable part of a paper because it's kind of uh, it's brief to the point. It's trying like summarizing. It's almost like a Wikipedia style article. The introduction is supposed to be a compelling story or, or whatever, but it's often like overselling. There, there's like an agenda in mm -hmm. the introduction. <laughs> the related work usually has the least amount of agenda except for the few like elements where you're trying to uh, talk shit about previous work where you're trying to sell that you're doing much better. But other, other than that, when you're just painting where the, where the field uh, came from or where the field stands, that's really valuable. And also, again, just to agree with Fine in the conclusion, but it's like, I get a lot of value from the breadth first search, kind of read mm -hmm. the conclusion, then read the related work and then uh, go through the references in the related work, mm -hmm. read the conclusion, read the related work and just go down the tree until you like hit dead ends or run out of coffee. And then through that <laughs> process, you go back up the tree and now you can see the results in their proper uh, in their proper context. Unless of course the paper is truly revolutionary, which even that process will help you understand that is in fact uh, truly uh, revolutionary. You've also um, 
you, you talked about just following your Twitter thread in a, <laughs> in a depth first search. You talked about that you read um, the book on um, uh, Grisha Perlman, Grigory mm -hmm. Perlman, mm -hmm. and then you, were, you, you had a really nice Twitter thread on it and mm -hmm. you were taking notes throughout. So at a high level, is there suggestions you can give on how to take good notes? Whether it's, we're talking about annotations or just for yourself to try to uh, put on paper ideas as you progress through the work in order to then like understand the work better. For me, I always try not to underestimate how much you can forget uh, within six months right. after you've read something. Oh, I thought you were gonna say five minutes, but yeah, six <laughs> months is good. Yeah, or, or, or even shorter. And so that's something that I always try to keep in mind. And, uh, and, it's, and it's often, I mean, every once in a while I'll, I'll read back a paper that I annotated on Fermat and it's, and, uh, and I'll read through my own annotations and it's, uh, and I've completely forgotten what I had written. And, uh, but it also, it, it also, it's interesting because in a way, after you just understood something, you're kind of the best possible teacher that can teach your future self, uh, yeah. you know, after you've forgotten it, uh, you can, you're kind of your own best possible teacher at that moment. And so it's, it can be great to, to try to capture that. Uh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. You just made me kind of realize it's really nice to, to put yourself in the position of teaching an older version of yourself exactly. that returns to this paper, almost like thinking it literally. That's underexplored. But it's it's super powerful because you were the person that you can like if you if you look at the scale from like one not knowing anything about the topic and ten, like you are the one that progressed from one to ten and you know which steps you struggled with. So you are the really the best person to help yourself make that transition from one to ten. And um, and a lot of the times, like uh, and, and we don't, I, I really believe that the framework that we have to like expose our, ourselves to like be talking to like us when we were an expert, when we were taking that class and we knew everything about quantum mechanics. And then six months later, you don't remember half of the things. Like, how could we make it easier for like to have those conversations between you and your past self, past expert self? Um, I, I think there there might be, you know, it's an under, underexplored idea. I think notes on paper are probably not the best way. I'm not sure if it's a combination of like video audio where it's like you have a guided framework that you follow to extract information from yourself so that you can later kind of revisit to make it easier to to remember but that's i think it's an interesting idea worth worth exploring that not i've i haven't seen a lot of people kind of trying to uh, distill that problem yeah i'm creating the kind of tools i find if i record it sounds sounds weird but i'll take notes but if I record audio, like um, like little clips of uh -huh. thoughts, like rants, that's really effective at capturing something that notes can't. Mm -hmm. Because when I replay them, for some reason, it loads my brain back into where I was when I was reading that in a way that notes don't. Mm -hmm. Like when I read notes, I'll often be like, what, what? <laughs> what, was I what was I thinking there? But when I listen to the audio, yeah it brings you right back to that place. So there might, and maybe with video, with visual, that mm -hmm. might be even more powerful. I think so. Yeah, and, and I think just the process of 
you know, verbalizing it, yes. it, it that, that alone kind of makes you have to structure your thought and, and, and put it in a way that somebody else could come and, and understand it. And, and just the process of that is, is useful to, to organize your thoughts and, and, and um, yeah, just, just that alone. Does the Fermaz Library Journal Club have a like a video component or no? We not not natively. We sometimes will include uh, videos, but it's always embedded. Do people like build videos on top of it to explain the paper? Because you're doing all the hard work of understanding deeply the paper. Not we haven't seen that happening too much. But uh, we were we were actually playing around with the idea of creating some sort of podcast version where we try to distill the paper. Uh, on an audio format that not maybe you could have access to, might be trickier, but you, there are definitely people that could be interested in the paper and that topic, but are not willing to read it, but they might listen to a 30 minute episode on that paper. Yes. You could reach more people and, and you might even bring the authors to the conversation, but it's tricky. And especially for like more technical papers, we've, we've thought about that, doing that, but we haven't, uh, like converged. Sure. If you have any, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to take that as a, a, a small project to take one of your one of the formats, almost like half advertisement and half as a challenge for myself to take <laughs> take one of the annotated papers and like use it as a basis for creating a, a quick video. Uh, I I've seen like um, hopefully I'm saying the name correctly, but machine learning street talk. Mm. I think that's the name of the show. The that I recommend highly. <laughs> That's the right name. <laughs> but uh, they, they do exactly that, which is multiple hour breakdown of a paper mm -hmm. with video component. Sometimes with authors, um, people love it. It's very effective. There's there's also, I've seen, I haven't seen the entire in its entirety, but I've seen like the, the founder of comma.ai, mm -hmm. George. Yeah, George. I've seen him like just yeah. taking a paper and then, uh, uh, you know, distilling the paper uh, and, and coding it, coding it sometimes during 10 hours. Yeah. yeah, and um, he was able to, you know, get a lot of people interested in in that and viewing him. Like so I'm a huge fan of that. <laughs> like uh, it's, George is a personality. I think a lot of people like listen to this podcast for the same reason. It's not necessarily the contents. It's they 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 like to listen to like a a, a silly Russian who has a childlike brain and mumbles and all those like struggle with ideas, right? And George is a madman who people just enjoy <laughs> like, how is he going to struggle in implementing this particular paper? How is he going to struggle with this idea? It's fun to watch and that actually pulls you in. The personality is important there. Again. True, but there's, there's, you know, I agree with you, but there also it's visible, like it's, the, there's an extraordinary ability that is there, like is talented and you need to have, yes. there's a craft and this guy definitely has talent and he's doing something that is not easy. Yeah. And I think that also draws the attention of people. Oh yeah. And yeah. and, and like the, the other day we were actually, we ran into this YouTube channel of this guy that was restoring art, okay. right? Um, yeah. And and um, it was basically just a, a video of him, like his, the production is really uh, like really well done. And it's just him taking really old, um, pieces of, of art like and then paintings and then restoring them but he's really good at that and he describes that process and it, that draws attention uh, draws the attention of people regardless yeah. of your craft be it like annotating a paper or like restoring craftsmanship a, excellence yeah. yeah like george is incredibly good at programming like quick like you know those uh competitive programmers like mm -hmm. top uh -huh. coder and all those kinds of stuff he has the same kind of element where the brain just jumps around really quickly 
and that's uh yeah j- j- just like and, with and art restoration it's more yeah it's motivating but but it, and you're right in in watching people who are good at what they do it's motivating even if the thing you're trying to do is not what they're doing it's just like contagious when they're exactly. really good at it and the same kind of analysis with the paper i think so not just like the final result, but the process mm-hmm. yeah. of struggling with it. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think Twitch proved that, like, yeah. you know, that there's really a market for for that for watching people do things that they're really good at, and uh, and you'll just watch it. You'll enjoy that. That that might even uh, spike your interest in that specific topic. And yeah, and people people will enjoy uh, watching sometimes hours on end of, of yeah great craftsmen. <laughs> Do you mind if we talk about some of the papers? Do any papers come to mind that uh, have been annotated on Fermat's library? The the papers that we annotated can be about completely random topics, but that's part of the, what we enjoy as well. It forces you to explore these topics that otherwise maybe you'd never run into. Uh, and so and so the ones that come to mind are, to me are, are fairly random, but one that I, I really enjoyed learning more about is um, a paper uh, written by a mathematician, actually Tom Apostol, and uh, about a uh, a tunnel in a Greek island off the coast of Turkey. So it's very <laughs> like this random. Uh, yeah. So this, uh, okay. So what's interesting about this tunnel? So this tunnel um, was built in the sixth century BC, and um, and it was built in this in the island of Samos. Uh, which is, as I said, off the coast of Turkey. And um, right, they had the city on one side, then they had a mountain, and then they had uh, a bunch of springs on the other side, and they, they wanted to bring water into the city. Um, they, building an aqueduct would be pretty hard because of the, the way the mountain was shaped. And it would also, you know, if they, if they were under a siege, like they, they could just um, easily destroy that aqueduct and then the water w- wouldn't have any water supply. The, the city wouldn't have any water supply. And so they decided to build a tunnel and they decided to try to do it quickly. Um, and so the, they started digging uh, from both ends at the same time through the mountain, right? And so like when you start thinking about this, it's, it's a fairly difficult problem. And this is like 6th century BC. So you had very limited access to, to, you know, the the mathematical tools that you had at the time were very limited. And so what this paper is about is about the story of how they built it and about the fact that for about 2000 years, kind of the accepted accepted explanation of how they built it was actually wrong. And so this tunnel has been famous for a while. There are a number of historians that talked about it since ancient Egypt. And um, and the method that they described uh, for for building it um, is is um, was just wrong. And and so these these researchers went there and and were able to figure it, figure that out. Um, and so basically, kind of the way that they thought they had built it was basically if you can imagine looking at the mountain from the top, and you have the mountain, and then you have both entrances. Um, and so what they what they thought. And what this is what the ancient historians described is that they uh, effectively tried to draw a, a right angle, a right angle triangle, um, with the two entrances at each end of the hypotenuse. Mm-hmm. And the way they did it is like they would w- go around the mountain and kind of walking in a grid fashion, and then you can you can figure out uh, the two sides of the triangle. And then after you have that triangle, 
you can effectively draw two smaller triangles at each entrance that are uh, proportional to that big triangle. Uh, and then you kind of have arrows pointing in each way. Got it. And then you can you you know at least that these that you have a line going through the the mountain that connects both entrances. Mm-hmm. The issue with that is like w- once you once you go to this mountain and you start thinking of doing this, you realize that especially given that the tools that they had at the time, that your error margin would be too small. You wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, it you you you. The, just the fact of, of trying to, to build this triangle in that fashion, the error would accumulate and you would end up missing. You'd start building these tunnels and they would miss each other. So the task ultimately is to, to figure out like really perfectly as, as, clo- as close as possible the direction you should be digging. Mm-hmm. First of all, that it's possible to have a straight line through and exactly. then what that the direction would be. And then yeah. you are trying to infer that by constructing a right triangle by doing, I, I'm not exactly sure about how to do that rigorously, like by tracing the mountain, by walking uh-huh. along the mountain, how to, you said grids? Yeah, you, you kind of walk as if you were in a in a grid and so you, you just walk in right angles. I so, right. But then so, you have to walk really precisely then. Exactly. You have to use tools. To measure this. And then the terrain is probably Yeah, very hazardous. So this makes more sense in 2D and 3D it gets even weirder. Yeah. So, okay, gotcha. But so this method was described by like an ancient Egyptian historian, I think hero of Alexandria. And, um, and then for about like, yeah, for about 2000 years, that's, that's, how, like, that's how we thought that they'd built this, this tunnel. Um, and then, uh, and yeah, and then these researchers went there and, and, and found out that actually they, they must have had to, to use other methods. And, and then in this paper, they describe these these other methods and the, of course they can't know for sure but there's uh they present a bunch of plausible alternatives uh, the one that for me was is the most plausible is that what they probably must have done is to use something that is similar to an iron sight on a rifle the way you can line up uh your rifle with a target off in the distance by by having an iron sight um and uh and they 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 must have done something similar to that effectively with three, with three sticks and that way they were able to line up sticks uh along the side of the mountain that were all on the same height and so that uh, then you could get to the other side and you could okay. and then you could draw that line so this for me is the most plausible uh w- w- way that they might have done that and they but then they 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 yeah, they describe this in detail and other possible approaches in this paper. So this is a mathematician doing this. Yeah, this is a mathematician that that did this, um, which I suppose is the right mindset instead of skills required to solve an ancient problem, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were mathematicians and engineers, there a lot of things because they didn't have uh, computers or drones or lidar back then or whatever technology you would use modern day for the civil engineering. Yeah. Another fascinating thing is that, like, you know, after effectively after the the downfall of the Roman civilization, people didn't build tunnels for about a thousand years. We, we go a thousand years without tunnels, and then like only in like in late Middle Ages that that we start doing them again. But uh, but here is the tunnel, like sixth century BC, like incredibly limited mathematics, and they and they build it in this way. Um, and 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 for and it was a mystery for for a long time exactly how they did it and and then these mathematicians went there and and uh, yeah. and and basically with no archaeology kind of background were able to figure it out. 
How do annotations for this paper look like? What is it, uh, what's a successful annotation for a paper like this? Yes, yeah, so sometimes you're, uh, for this paper, um, sometimes adding some more context uh, on, on a specific um, part. Like sometimes they, they mentioned, for instance, um, these instruments that were common in ancient Greece and, and ancient Rome for, for building things. And, uh, and, and so in some of those annotations, I described these instruments in more detail and how they worked, because uh, sometimes it can be hard to, to visualize these. Um, then this paper, um, I forget exactly when, when this was published, um, I believe maybe maybe the 70s. Um, but then there was further research into this tunnel and more interesting, other interesting aspects about it. I add those to that paper as well. There's historical context that I also go into uh, there. Um, for instance, the fact that, as, a, as I said, that effectively after the downfall of the Roman Empire, no tunnels were built. Like that's something that I that I go, that I that I added to the paper as well. Yeah. So so those are. And, so things. when other people look at the paper, how do they usually consume the annotations? So they it's like is there a commenting feature? Is the I mean like this is a really enriching experience the way you read a paper. What what aspects do you do people usually talk about that they they value from this? So yeah, so anybody can just go on there and and uh, either add a new annotation or add a comment to an existing annotation, and yeah. so you can start a kind of a thread uh, within an existing annotation, um, and that's something that happens relative frequency. And then because I was the original author of the initial annotation, I get pinged, and so oftentimes I'll go back and 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 add on to to that thread. How'd you pick the paper? It's a, I mean, first of all, this whole process is really exciting. I'm gonna, especially after this conversation, I'm gonna make sure I participate much more actively on papers that I know a lot about and on papers I know nothing about. I should both are- When I say the paper. <laughs> I would love to. I also, I mean, I, I realized that uh, there's a, like it's an opportunity for people like me to publicly annotate a paper. Like, Mm -hmm. like to, or do to, an AMA around the paper. Like, yeah, exactly. But yeah, but like be um, be in the conversation about a paper. It's like a place to mm -hmm. have a conversation about an idea. You get, The other way to do it that's much more ad hoc is on Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. But this is more like formal and you could actually probably integrate the two. You have a conversation about the conversation. So the Twitter is the conversation about a conversation and the main conversation is in the space of annotations. There's an interesting effect that we, we see sometimes with the annotations on our papers is that a lot of people, especially if we the annotations are really well done, people sometimes are afraid of adding more annotations because yes. they see that as a kind of a finished work. Yes. And so they, they don't want to pollute that or yeah. uh, and especially if it's like a silly question. This is, I don't think that's good. I think, you know, we should as much as possible try to lower the barrier for someone to jump in and ask questions. I think it only, like most of the times it adds value, but it's a f some feedback that we got from users and, and uh, readers. Um, I'm not exactly sure how to, to kind of fight that, but um, well, I think I, I think if I serve as an inspiration, in any way, is by asking a lot of dumb questions and saying a bunch <laughs> of dumb shit all the time, and hopefully that inspires the rest of the, uh, other folks to do the same because but, that's the only w way to knowledge. I think is to 
be willing to ask the dumb questions. And and there are papers that are like, um, and we have a lot of papers on Fermat where it's just one page or really short papers. And uh, you we have like the shortest paper ever published in a math journal, like <laughs> yeah. with like just a couple of words. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of my favorite papers on the platform is actually a paper um, written by F uh, Enrico Fermi. Yeah. And the, the title of the paper is, my I think is My Observations at Trinity. So basically Fermi was part of the, the Manhattan Project. So he was in New Mexico when um, they exploded the first atomic bomb. And so it was a couple of miles away from the explosion, and he was probably one of the first persons to calculate the energy of the explosion. And so the way he did that was he took a piece of paper and he tore down a piece of paper in, in little pieces. And when the bomb exploded, uh, the Trinity bomb was the name of the bomb, like he waited for the blast to arrive at the, where he was. <laughs> and then he threw those pieces of paper in the air and he calculated the energy based on the displacement uh, of the paper, the pieces of paper. And then he wrote a report, which was classified until like a couple of years ago, <laughs> one page report, like calculating the energy of the explosion. Uh, that's and, so badass. And I, I, we actually went there and kind of unpacked and like, uh, kind of, yeah, I think it just mentions basically the energy and we we actually went, and one of the annotations is like explaining how he did that. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder how accurate he was. It was maybe I think like 20, 20 or 25% off. Uh, then there was another person that actually calculated the energy based on uh, images after the explosion at the rate uh, and the rate at which the 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 like the mushroom of the explosion expanded, and it's more accurate to calculate the energy based on that. Um, and I think it was like twenty twenty percent off. But it's it's really interesting because you know Fermi was known for all these being a master at these back of the envelope calculations. Mm -hmm. Always like the Fer the Fermi problems are well known for for that. Um, and it's super interesting to see like that just one page report and it was also actually classified. And it's interesting because a couple months ago uh, when the Beirut explosion happened, there was a, a video circulating of these um, a bride that was doing a photo shoot uh, when the explosion in Beirut happened. And so you can see a video of her with a wedding dress and then the explosion happens and the blast arrives at where she was. She was a couple of miles away from the blast. And you can see like... Um, the displacement of the dress as well. And I actually looked, and that video went viral on Twitter, and I actually looked at that video and based, I used the same techniques that Fermi used to calculate the energy of the explosion uh, based on the displacement of the dress. And you could actually see where, where she was at the, the distance from the explosion because there was a store behind her and you could look the name of the store and... And so I calculated that it was the uh, distance, and it, then you can the, 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 based on the distance where she was from the the, yeah. the explosion, and also on the the displacement of the dress, like mm -hmm. because you can when the blast happens, like you can see the dress going back and then re going back to the original position, and like by just looking at like how much the the, the dress moved, you can estimate the the energy of the explosion. I assume you published this. Uh, on Twitter, it was just a, a, a Twitter thread, uh, but it, it, it actually like a lot of people share that, and it was picked up by a couple of, of um, news outlets. But well, it was, I, I, I was hoping it would be like a formal title and it would be an archive. No, 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 and no. Maybe submitted a, just the Twitter <laughs> Twitter thread. But it was interesting because it was exactly the same uh, method that Fermi used. Is there something else that jumps to mind? Like, what is there something? Um, I know, like in terms of papers, like I know the Bitcoin paper is super popular. Mm -hmm. Is there something interesting to be said about any of the white papers in the mm -hmm. cryptocurrency space? Yeah, the 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 Bitcoin paper was the first paper that uh, we oh, put on right. formats, 
And uh, <laughs> why, why that? Why that choice as the first paper? This was a while ago, and it was one of the papers that I read, and then uh, and then kind of explained it to to Luigi and our two other friends that do this journal club with us. And um, I did some research in cryptography uh, as an undergrad, and so it was a topic that I was interested in. Um, but even for me, that I, I had that that background, but reading the Bitcoin paper. It, it took me a few reads to really kind of wrap my head around it. It's it's right. It's it uses very Spartan precise language in a way. It's like you feel like you can't take any word out of it without something falling apart, and uh, and it's all there. I think it's a beautiful paper, and it's 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 very well written, of course. But um, you know, we wanted to try to make it accessible so that anybody that maybe is an undergrad in computer science could go on there. And then and and know that you have all the information in in that page that you're going to need to understand the mechanics of Bitcoin. And so, like I explain, you know, the basic uh, public key cryptography that you need to to know in order to understand it. Like I explain, okay, what are the properties of a hash function and how they are useful in this context. Um, explain what a Merkle tree is. So a bunch of those basic concepts that maybe if you're reading it for a first time and you're an undergrad and you know you don't know those terms, you're going to be you know, discouraged because maybe, okay, now I have to go and Google around until I understand these before I can make progress in the paper. Um, and, and this way it's all there. You know? so, so there's a, a magic to, also to the fact that over time, more people went on there and, and added further annotations. So the, the idea that the paper gets easier and more accessible over time, but that's still, you're still looking at the original content, the way the, the author uh, intended it to be. Uh, but there's just more context and the toughest bits have, have more in-depth explanations. Uh, okay, I think like we, there's a, just so many interesting papers uh, there. Like, uh... I remember reading the paper that was written by Freeman Dyson on the, like the the first time that he explained or he, he came up with the concept of the Dyson sphere, mm-hmm. and he, he he put that out like it, it's again it's a one page paper, um and he what he explained was that eventually if uh, a civilization develops and 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 grows there's going to be a point where when the resources on the planet are not are not enough for the energy requirements of that civilization. So if you want to go, the next step is you need to go to the next star and extract energy from that star. And the way to do it is you need to build some sort of cap around the star that extracts the energy. So he, he theorized this idea of the, the Dyson sphere, mm-hmm. and he went on to kind of analyze how you would build that, the stability of that sphere, like if something happens, like if there's like a small oscillation with the, that sphere collapse into the, the star or no, what what would happen? And even went on to uh, kind of say that a good way for us to look for signs of intelligent life out there is to look for signals of these uh, Dyson spheres. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, according to the law, of, uh, second law of thermodynamics, like this, this, there's gonna be some, a lot of infrared radiation that is gonna be emitted as a consequence of extracting energy from the star. Mm-hmm. And we should be able to see those signals of like infrared if we look at the sky. But all these, like from the introduction of the concept, like the pro- how to build a Dyson sphere, the problems of like having a Dyson sphere, how to detect how that could be used as a signal for intelligent life. Wait, like, really? That's all in the paper? All in one, like one page paper. And it's like, it's it's for me, it's beautiful. It's like- Where was this published? 
I don't remember. It, it's it's fascinating been, that papers like that could be. Yeah. I mean, the guts it takes to put that all together in a paper True. form. You know, that, that kind of challenges our previous discussion that of paper. I mean, papers can be beautiful. You can play with the format, right? It, but there's a lot to unpack there. That's the, like the, the the that's the the starting point. But it's 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 beautiful that you're able to right. put that in one page, uh, and then people can build on top of that. And but like, the key ideas are there. Yeah, exactly. What about have you looked at any of the the big seminal papers throughout the history of science? Like you look at simple like Einstein papers. Mm-hmm. Are any, have any of those been annotated? Yeah, yeah. No, we we have some more seminal papers that that people will have heard about um you know we have the the dna double helix paper on there we have the higgs boson Mm -hmm. uh, paper um yeah there's papers that 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 we know that it's they're not going to be finding out about them because of us but it's papers that we think um should be more widely read and that folks would benefit from having some annotations there. And so we also have a number of those. Yeah, a lot of like discovery papers for fundamental like particles and all that. There's, we have a lot of those on from us library. Um, yeah, we, I, I would like to, an, we haven't annotated that one, but I'd like to, on the Riemann hypotheses, that's a really interesting paper as well. Um, and, and, but we haven't annotated that one, but there's a lot of like more historical landmark papers um, on the platform. Have you done uh, Poincaré conjecture with uh, with Perlman? That's too much. That's <laughs> too much. <laughs> that's too much. Too much for me. But it's uh, it's it's interesting that you know. And going back to our discussion, like the the Poincaré paper was like published on archive, yeah. and and it was not on a journal. Like the three papers. And yeah, what do you make of that? I mean, the, he's such a fascinating human being. Exactly. I mentioned to you offline that I'm going to Russia. He's somebody I'm really you uh, try to, to interview. Him. Yeah, I well, I, I so I definitely will interview him. I um and I believe I will. I believe I can. I just don't know how to <laughs> I know where he lives. So here, here okay. My my uh my hope is, my conjecture is that I, if I just show up to the house and look desperate enough uh that uh or threatening enough or some combination of both <laughs> that like the only way to get rid of me is to just get the thing done that's the hope it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I, I after i um so a couple of weeks ago i was searching for like stuff about paramount paramount online and ended up on this twitter account of like, this guy that claims to be paramount paramount's assistant hmm. and He's like, he has been posting a bunch of pictures like next to Paramount. You can see like Paramount in, in a library and he's like next to him, like taking a selfie or like yeah. Perlman walking yeah. on the street and like maybe you could reach out to <laughs> this assistant and I'll send you, I'll send you this Twitter account. So, so maybe you're onto something. <laughs> no, but, but going, going back to like Perlman is super interesting because the fact that he published the, 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 the proofs on archive is what was also like a, a way for him to, because he, he really didn't like the scientific publishing industry and the fact that you had to pay to get uh, access to to articles. And that was a, a form of like protest. And that's why he published um, those papers there. I mean, I, I think Perlman is just a fascinating like character. And for me, it's this kind of ideal of a plat- platonic ideal of what a mathematician uh, should be. You know, it's it's someone that is, you know, it's, it just cares about, deeply cares about mathematics. You know, it cares about fair attribution of, of um, 
disregards money and um and and like the fact that he published like on archive was is, is a good example of what that. about the fields medal that he turned down the fields medal what's what's yeah uh, what, what do you make of that yeah i mean if you look at like the reasons why he rejected the fields medal so after so paramount did a, a postdoc in the us and when he, he came back to russia um do you know how good his english is I think it's fair, fairly I good. I think it's pretty good. I right? think it's really good, okay. especially in he's right. given lectures uh, yeah. in American universities. But I haven't been able to listen to anything. Well, certainly not listen, but I haven't been able to get anybody because I know a lot of people have been to those lectures. I'm not able to get a sense of like, yeah, but how strong is the accent? What are we talking about uh, here? Mm. Is this going to have to be in Russian? Is it going to have to be in English? Uh, yeah. It's fascinating. But he writes the papers in English, so true. Like there's, there's, but there's so many. Like it's such a fascinating character and. Um, there are a couple of examples like him, like at tw I think 28 or 29, he proved like a really famous uh, conjecture called the soul conjecture. I believe it was like in a very short four page proof of that it was a really big breakthrough. Then he went to Princeton to give a lecture on that. And after the lecture, uh, the, the chair of the math department at Princeton, a guy called Peter Sarnak went up to, to, to Perelman was trying to recruit him, trying to offer him a position at, at Princeton. And he was, and at some point, he asked for Perelman's resume. <laughs> and Perelman responded saying, just gave a lecture on like this really tough problem. Why do you need my resume? Like, I, I'm not going to send you, like I just proved like, yeah. my value. Uh, but uh, but going back to the Fields Medal, like when, when Perelman <laughs> went to, to back to Russia, he, he, he arrived at a time where the, the salary of postdocs were so much off in regards to inflation that they were not making any money like they, they people didn't even bother to pick up the checks at the end of the month because it was like ridiculous mm -hmm. but thankfully he had some money that he had uh, gained while he was doing his postdoc so he just concentrated on like the Poincaré the the Poincaré conjecture problem which he when he when he took that um he, he took it after uh, it was reframed by this uh, mathematician called Richard Hamilton which posed the problem in a way that it turned into this super uh, like math Olympiad problem with like perfect boundaries well-defined. And it, that was perfect for Perelman to attack. And so he spent like seven years working on that. And then in 2002, he started publishing those papers on archive. And you know, people started jumping on that, reading those papers. And there was like a lot of uh, um, excitement around that. A couple of years later, there were two researchers, I believe it was, they were from Harvard that, but, took Perelman's, Perelman's work, they sanded some of the edges and they republished that, saying that, you know, based on Perelman's work, they were able to figure out the, the Poincaré conjecture. And then there was, um, at the time at the, in, the International um, Conference of, of Mathematics in 2000, 2006, I believe that's when they were gonna give out the Fields Medal. There was a lot of debate of like, oh, who's, who's like we should get the credit for uh, solving this big problem, and for Perelman, it like it, it it felt really sad that people were even considering that he was not the person that solved that, mm -hmm. um, and and the claims that th those like researchers uh, when they published after Perelman, they were false claims that they were the ones they just sanded a couple of edges. Like mm -hmm. Perelman did all the really hard work, and so just just the fact that they doubted that Perelman had done that. Like was enough for him to say, I'm not, I'm not interested in this prize, mm -hmm. and that was one of the reasons why he rejected the Fields Medal. He then he also rejected the Clay Prize, so the 
Poincaré conjecture was one of the millennium prizes. There was a million dollar prize associated with that problem. And that has to, had to do with the fact that for them to attribute that prize, I think it had to be published on a journal. Yes. The proof. And again, Perelman's principles of uh, like interfered here. And, and he also just didn't care about the money. He was like, um, Clay, I think, was a businessman, and he's like, doesn't have to do anything with with mathematics. I don't care about these. Like, um, and that's one of the reasons why I re rejected the. the yeah, the there's. A, it's hard to convert into words, but um, at MIT, I'm distinctly aware of the distinction between when I enter a room. There's a certain kind of music to the way people talk when it, we're talking about ideas, versus what that music sounds like when we're talking, when it's like bickering in the space of like, <laughs> whether it's politics or funding or egos, it's a different sound to it. <laughs> and I'm distinctly aware of the two. And I kinda sort of, to me personally, happiness was just like swimming around <laughs> the one that like is the political stuff or the money stuff and all that, uh, or egos. Um, and I think that's probably what Promlin is as well. Like the moment he senses there's any, as with the Fields model, like the moment you start to have any kind of drama around credit assignment, all those kinds of things, it's almost not that it's important who gets the credit. It's like the drama in itself gets in the way of the exploration of the ideas or the fundamental thing that makes science so damn beautiful. And and you can really see that this is also a product of that Russian school of, yeah. of like doing science. And you can see that, that, um, that people were, you know, during the Cold War, a lot of mathematicians, they were not making any money. They were doing math for the sake of math, like for the intellectual, pleasure of like solving a difficult problem yeah and you know even even if it was a flawed system and there were a lot of problems with with that there's these they were able to to, to actually achieve these and uh, there were a lot of uh, and perelman for me is the perfect product of that he just cared about like working on tough problems he didn't care about anything else it was just math you know pure math yeah there's a like for the broader audience i think another example of that is like professional sports versus Olympics. Mm -hmm. I've, especially in Russia, I've seen that clear distinction where because the state manages so much of the Olympic process in, in Russia, as people know with the steroids, yes, yes, yes. But outside of the steroids thing uh, is like the athlete can focus on the pure artistry of the sport. like like not worry about the money, not just in the way they talk about it, the way they think about it, the way they define excellence versus like in the, perhaps a bit of a capitalist system in the United States with uh, American football, with baseball, with basketball. So much of the discussion is about money. Now, of course, at the end of the day, it's about excellence and artistry and all of that, but when the culture is so richly grounded in discussions of money and uh, sort of this capitalistic like uh, merch and uh, businesses and all those kinds of things, it changes the nature of the activity. And it's in a way that's hard again to describe in mm -hmm. words, but when it's purely about the activity itself, it's almost like 
you quiet down all the noise enough to hear the signal, enough to hear the beauty. Like whenever you're talking about the money, that's when the marketing people come and the business people, the non-creatives come and they fill the room and there's and they create drama and they know how to create the drama and the noise as opposed to the people who are truly excellent at what they do, the, the um, person in their arena, right? Like when you remove all the money mm-hmm. and you just let that thing shine, that's when true excellence can and can come out. And that was of the few things that work with the communist system in the Soviet Union, to me at least, as somebody who loves sport and loves mathematics and uh, science, that worked well. Removing the money from the picture. <laughs> uh, so, you know, not that I'm... Um, not that I'm saying poverty is good for science. There's some level in which not worrying about money mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. is good for science. It's a weird, I'm not exactly sure what to make of that because capitalism works really mm-hmm. damn well. Yeah. But it's um, mm-hmm. it's tricky how to find that balance. One Fields medalist that is interesting to look at, and I think you mentioned it earlier, but is Cedric Villani, which is might be the only uh, Fields medalist that is also politician now but so it's this it's this brilliant french mathematician that that won the fields medal and and after that he decided that one of the ways that he could have could have uh, you know the biggest leverage kind of in pushing science in the direction that he thinks science should go would be to to try to go into politics and so that's what he did and and uh and he he has ran I'm not sure if he has won uh, any election, to, but I think it, he's running for mayor, for of mayor Paris. of Paris or something like that. But it's this brilliant mathematician that uh, that uh, before winning the Fields Medal uh, had only been a, 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 just a brilliant mathematician. But but after that, he decided to go into politics to to try to to have an impact and try to change some of the things that he he would complain about um, before. So so there's that component uh, as well. Yeah, and I've always thought mathematics and science should be like, like James Bond would, in my eyes, I think be sexier if he did math. Like we should as a society put excellence in mathematics at the same level as being able to kill a man with your bare hands. Like those are both useful features. Like that's admirable. It's like, oh, like that makes you like, that makes the person interesting. Mm-hmm. Like being extremely well read about history or philosophy, being good in mathematics, being able to kill a man with bare hands. Those are all the same in my book. <laughs> so I think all are useful for action stars. Uh, and I think the society will benefit for uh, for giving more value to that. Like one of the things that bothers me about American culture is the, I don't know the right words to use, but like the nerdiness associated with science. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and I, I don't think nerd is a good word in mm-hmm. in American culture because uh, it's seen as like weakness. There's like mm-hmm. images that come with that. True. And it's fine. You could, you could be all kinds of uh, shapes and colors and personalities, but like to me, uh, having sophisticated knowledge in science, being good at math doesn't mean you're weak. Mm-hmm. In fact, it could be the very opposite. And so it's it's an interesting thing because it was very much differently viewed in the uh, in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So I know for sure, as an existence proof, <laughs> that uh, it doesn't have to be that way. But it. Um, I also feel like we lack a lot of 
like role models in terms if you ask people like mention to, to mention one mathematician that yeah. they know that is alive today i think a lot of people would struggle to answer that question um and i also think i love neil degrasse tyson mm -hmm. okay but there is uh having more role models is good Mm -hmm. like different kinds of personalities. Mm -hmm. He he has kind of fun and and it's very it's uh like Bill Nye the science guy. I don't know if you guys know him. Mm -hmm. So like that, that spectrum. Kind of, that yeah, but there there's not like Feynman is no longer there. Mm -hmm. Uh those kinds of personalities. Carl Sagan, man. Even Carl Sagan, yeah. Like a seriousness that's mm -hmm. like not playful, oh, like yeah. not apologetic. Yeah, exactly. Not apologetic about being knowledgeable. Like like in fact like the kind of energy where you feel uh, self-conscious about not having thought about some of these questions mm -hmm. right just like when i see james bond i feel bad about that i don't have never killed a man like i need to make sure i fix that right? that's the way i feel <laughs> so the same way i want to feel like that way well carl sagan talks i I feel like I need to have that same kind of seriousness about science. Like mm -hmm. if I don't know something, I want to I want to know it well. Mm -hmm. What about Terence Tao? He's kind of a superstar. What, what are your thoughts about him? True, he's probably one of the most famous mathematicians alive today. And probably one of, I mean, regardless of like, is of course, uh, he won a, field, a Fields Medal, is a really smart and talented mathematician. Um, it's also like a big inspiration for us uh, um, at least for, for some of the work that we do with Fermat's library. So Terence Tau is, is known for having, you know, a big blog and he's pretty open about um, like his research. And he, he also, he tries to make his work as public as possible um, uh, through his blog posts. Um, in fact, there's a really interesting um, problem that got solved a couple of years ago. Uh, so Tau was working with uh, on a problem on an Erdos problem actually so it, Paul Erdos was this ma um, mathematician from Hungary and uh, he was known for like um, the Erdos for a lot of things but one of the things that he was also known was for the Erdos problem so he was always like um, creating these problems and usually associating prizes with those problems and a lot of those problems are still open like and and they will be some of them will be open for like maybe couple hundred years. And I think that's actually an interesting hack for him to collaborate with future mathematicians. You know, his, his name will, will keep coming up in, yeah. you know, for future gen generations. But so Tao was working <laughs> on one of these problems called the Erdos discrepancy. And he published a blog post on like, a, 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 about, that prob about that problem and he, he reached like a dead end. And then um, all of a sudden there was the, this guy from, from Germany that wrote like a comment on his blog post saying, okay, like some of the, the, so this problem is like a Sudoku like flavor and some of the machinery that we're using to solve Sudoku, Sudoku could be used here. And that was actually the key to solve the Erdos discrepancy problem. So the, there was a comment on his blog. And I think that, that, that for me is an example of like how to do, again, going back to collaborative science online um, and the power that it has. But Tau is, is also like pretty public about, uh, like some of the struggles and of of being a, a a mathematician, like and and even he wrote about some of the unintended consequences of having extraordinary ability in a field, 
and he used himself as an example. When he was growing up, he was extremely talented in, in mathematics from a young age. Like Tao was a person, he won a uh, medal in like one of the IMOs at the age, I think was a gold medal at the age of 10 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so he mentioned that when he was growing up, like, and especially in college, when he was in a class that he enjoyed, it didn't, it, it just came very natural for him and he didn't have to work hard to just ace the class. And when he, he found that the class was boring, like it didn't work and he, he barely passed barely passed I think in college he, he almost failed two classes and and he was talking about that and how he brought those studying habits or like uh, in existence of studying habits when he went to Princeton Princeton for his PhD and in Princeton when he you know started kind of um, uh, delving into more complex problems and classes he struggled a lot because he didn't have that uh, those those habits, like he wasn't taking notes, and mm-hmm. he was he wasn't studying hard when he when he faced problems, and he almost failed out of his his PhD. Uh, he almost failed his PhD exam, and um, it, it it talks about like having this conversation with with his advisor and the advisor pointing out like you're not this is not working. You you might have to get out of the program, mm-hmm. and like how that was a kind of a turning point for him. And um, and like it was super important in his career. So I, I think Tao is also like uh, this figure that, apart from being just a, an exceptional mathematician, he's also pretty open about you know what what it takes to 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 be a mathematician and some of the struggles of these type of careers. And and I think it's that's super important. In many ways, he's a contributor to open science mm-hmm. and open humanity. So he's, he's being an open human. True. Yeah. By communicating, uh, Scott Aronson is another in computer science mm-hmm. world who's a very different style, very different style. But there's something about a blog that um, is authentic and real, and just gives us a window into the into the mind and soul of of, uh, of these brilliant folks. So it's it's definitely a gift. Let me ask you about Fermat's library on Twitter, mm-hmm. which uh, I mean I don't know how to describe it. People should definitely just follow Fermat's library on Twitter. I I I keep following and unfollowing from my library because <laughs> because uh it's so it it gives when I follow it um leads me on t- down rabbit holes often <laughs> that um that um that are very fruitful but time consuming. <laughs> but anyway, so the 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 posts you do with the on Twitter are just these beautiful are things that reveal some beautiful aspect of mathematics. Um, is there a, um, mm. is there something you could say about the approach there? Yeah, and um, maybe maybe broadly what you find beautiful about mathematics, and then more specifically how you convert that into a rigorous process of revealing that in tweet form. That's a good point. I think there's something about math that you know a lot of the mathematical content and you know pay, beat papers are like little proofs. Um, you know, has in a way sort of an infinite half-life. What I mean by that is that if you look at like Euclid's elements, it's as valid today as it was when it was created like 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's not true for a lot of other scientific fields. Um, and so in regards to Twitter, I, I think there's also a very, it's a very under, underexplored platform from a learning perspective. I think if you look at content on Twitter, it's very easy to consume. It's very easy to read. Um, and especially when you're trying to explain something, you know, 
we humans get a, a dopamine hit if we learn something new. And that's a very, very powerful feeling. And that's why, you know, people go to classes when you have a really good professor, you know, it's, it's looking for those dopamine hits. And, 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 and that's something that we try to explore when we're producing content on Twitter. Imagine if we, we could, if you would, on a line to a restaurant, you could go, go to your phone to learn something new instead of social, uh, going to a, a, a you know, social network to just, and so, and I think it's very hard to, to sometimes to kind of provide that feeling because you need to sometimes digest content and, and put it um, in a way, you know, that it fits 280 characters um, and, and it requires a lot of sometimes time to do that. Uh, even though it's easy to consume, it's hard to make. But once you are able to to provide that eureka moment to people, like that's very powerful. They get that dopamine hit, and like you create this feedback cycle, and people come back for for more. And in Twitter, compared to like uh, you know an online course or a book, you have a zero percent dropout. So people will will read the content. The content. So that it's it's like it's part of the creators, like the person that is creating the content, if you're able to actually get that feedback cycle, it's super, super powerful. Yeah, but some of the stuff is like, like how the heck do you find that? And, and I don't know why it's so appealing. It, uh, like uh, this is from a, what is it? A couple of days ago. I'll just read out the number. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine is the largest prime number with consecutive increasing digits. I mean, that is so cool. That's like some <laughs> weird like glimpse into some deep universal truth, even though it's just a number. I mean, that's like so arbitrary. <laughs> like why why is it so pleasant that th that's a thing? But it is in some way. It's almost like it is a little glimpse at some mm -hmm. much bigger like... Um, and, and I think like, especially if, if we're talking about science, there's something unique about you go... And with a lot of the tweets, you go sometimes from a state of not knowing something to knowing something. Mm -hmm. And that is very particular to science, science, math, physics. And that, again, is extra, extremely addictive. And that's that's how I, 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 I feel about that. And um, that's why I think people engage so much with, with our tweets and go into rabbit holes. And then they, you know, we start with prime numbers and all of a sudden you are spending hours reading number theory things and you go into wikipedia and uh, you lose a lot of time there but uh, <laughs> well the variety is really interesting too there's human things there's uh there's physics things there's like numeric things mm -hmm. like I, like i just mentioned but there's also more rigorous mathematical things there's stuff that's tied to the history of math and the proofs and there's visual there's animations uh, there are looping animations that are incredible that reveal something there's uh Andrew Wiles on being smart. This is just me now, like, like <laughs> ignoring you guys and just going through. No, yeah, we're a bit like math drug dealers. We're just trying to get you hooked. You know, we're trying to give you that hit and trying to get you hooked. Yes, some people are brighter than others, but I really believe that most people can really get to to quite a good level in mathematics if they're prepared to deal with these psychological issues of how to handle the situation of being stuck. Yeah. Yeah, there's some truth to that. That's truth. I feel that's like really, it's some truth in terms of research and also about startups. You're, you're stuck a lot of the time uh, before you, you get to a breakthrough. And, and it's difficult to endure that process of like being stuck uh, because you're not trained to, to be in that position. 
um i feel uh yeah that's th yeah most people are broken by the stuckness or yeah. like they're distract like uh i i've i've been very cognizant of the fact that more and more social media becomes a thing like distractions become a thing that that moment of being stuck is uh your mind wants to to go do stuff that's unrelated to being stuck mm -hmm. and you should be stuck. I'm referring to small stucknesses, mm -hmm. like you're like trying to design something and it's a dead end, basically little dead ends, mm -hmm. uh, dead ends in programming, dead ends in trying to think through something. And then your mind wants to like, like, like uh, this is the problem with this like work-life balance culture is like take a break, like as, as if taking a break will solve everything. Sometimes it solves quite a bit, but like sometimes you need to sit in the stuckness and suffer a little bit mm -hmm. and then take a break. <laughs> but you you definitely need to be this. And like most people quit from that psychological battle of being stuck. So success is people who 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 uh persevere through that. Yeah. Yeah. And and in the creative process that's also true. I was the other day I was I think was reading about is this, um, what is his name? Ed Sheeran, like the musician, yeah. was talking a little bit about the creative process and he using was using this analogy of a faucet, like where you, when you turn on a faucet, it's as like the dirty water coming out in the beginning. And you just have to, you know, keep trusting that at some point your clean, clean, clear water will come out. But you have to endure that process. Like in the beginning, it's going to be dirty water oh, yeah. and, and, um, and just, you know, embrace that. Yeah, actually, this uh, the entirety of my YouTube channel and this podcast have been following that philosophy of dirty water. <laughs> like I've been, you know, I do believe that. Like you have to get all the crap out of your system first, and uh, sometimes it, it's it's all sometimes it's all crappy work. But, I, mean, I, I tend to be very self critical, but I, I do think that quantity leads to quality for some people. It does for my the way my mind works is like just keep putting stuff out there, keep creating and uh the quality will come as opposed to sitting there waiting mm -hmm. not doing anything until the thing seems perfect because the perfect may never come but just just on like on 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 our twitter uh, like profile i really and sometimes when you look on on some of those tweets they might seem like pretty kind of um you know why is this interesting it's like so raw uh, like it's just a number but i really believe that especially with math or physics it is possible to get everyone to love math or physics, even if you think you hate it. It's yeah. it's not a function of the student or the person that is on the other side. I think it's just purely a function of like how you explain a hidden beauty that they hadn't realized before. It's not easy, but I think it's like a lot of the times it's on like on the creator's side to to be able to like show that beauty to the other person. I think some of that is native to to humans. We just have that curiosity and you look at small uh, toddlers and babies and like them trying to figure things out and there's just something that is born with us that we 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 want for that understanding. We want to figure out the world around us and and so yeah, it shouldn't be like uh whether or not people are going are going to to enjoy it like I I I, I also really believe that everybody has that capacity to to fall in love with with math and physics. You mentioned startup. What do you think it takes to build a successful startup? Yeah, that it's what what Louise was saying that um, you need to in, to be able to endure being stuck. And and I think 
the best way to put it is that startups don't have a linear reward function, right? You, you oftentimes don't get rewarded for effort. And, 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 and most of our lives, we go through these processes that do uh, give you those small rewards for effort, right? In school, you study hard, generally you'll get a good grade and then you, good, you get like a good grades ever, or you get grades every semester. And so you're, you're slowly getting rewarded and pushed in the right direction. For, for startups, and startups are, are not the only thing that is like this, but for startups, it's, you know, you can put in a ton of effort into something that, and then get no reward for it, right? It's, it's like, like Sisyphus boulder, where you're mm-hmm. pushing that boulder up the mountain and, and, and you get to the top and then it just rolls all the way back down. And, and so that's something that I think a lot of people are not equipped to deal with and can be incredibly demoralizing especially if that happens more than than a few times. And so, but I think it's absolutely essential to, to power through it because um, by the nature of startups, it's oftentimes, you know, you're dealing with, with, with non-obvious ideas and things that, that might be contrarian. And so you're going to, you're going to run into, into that a lot. You're going to do things that are not going to work out uh, and you need to be prepared to deal with that. But, but it, we're not, coming out of college, you're, you're just not equipped. I'm not sure if there's a way to train people to deal with those non-linear reward functions, but it's definitely, I think, one of the most difficult things to, you know, yeah. about doing a startup. And also happens in research sometimes, you know, we're talking about the default state is being stuck. You just, you know, you don't, know, like you try things, you get zero results, you close doors, you constantly closing doors until you, you know, find something and, um, yeah, that is a big thing. What, what about sort of this point when you're stuck, there's a kind of decision whether you, you if you have a vision to persist th- through with this direction that you've been going along or what a lot of startups do or businesses is pivot. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you decide whether like to give up on a particular flavor of the way you've imagined the design and to like adjust it or completely like alter it i think that's a core question for startups that i've asked myself exactly and like i've never been able to come up with a great framework to make those decisions um i think that's really at the core of uh yeah out of a lot of the the toughest questions that that people that's that started a company have to deal with um yeah i think maybe the best framework that i i have was able to figure out is like when you run out of ideas you just, you know, you're exploring something, it's not working, you try it in a different angle, uh, you know, you try a different business model. Yeah. When you run out of ideas, like you don't have any more cards, just switch and yeah. yeah. It's not perfect it, it, because you also, it's you have a lot of stories of startups with like people kept pushing and then, you know, that paid off. And then you have uh, philosophies is like fell fast and pivot fast. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to, you know, balance these two worlds and understand what is the best framework. And I mean, if you look at Fermat's library, you're, maybe you can correct me, but it feels like you're an operating in a space where there's a lot of things that are broken mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. or could be significantly improved. So it feels like there's a lot of possibilities for pivoting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like, how do you revolutionize science? How do you revolutionize the aggregation, the 
the annotation, the commenting, the community around information of uh, knowledge, structured knowledge. I mean, that's kind of what like Stack Overflow and Stack mm -hmm. Exchange has struggled with mm -hmm. to come up with a solution. And they've come up, I think, with an interesting set of solutions that are also, I think, flawed in some ways, but they're much, much better than the alternatives. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of other possibilities. If we just look at papers, as we talked about, there's yeah. so many possible revolutions and there's a lot of money to be potentially made mm -hmm. in those revolutions. Plus coupled with that, the benefit to humanity. Mm -hmm. And so like you're sitting there, like I don't know how many people are, are legitimately from a business perspective playing with these ideas. It feels like there's a lot of ideas here. True, there is. Are you right now grinding in a particular direction? Like, is there a, a, a like a five-year vision that you're thinking in your mind? For us, it's more like a 20-year vision <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that uh, we, we've consciously tried to make the decision of, so we so we run Formats as, it's a side project. And it's a side project in the sense like, it's not what we're working on full-time. And, uh, but our thesis there is that we actually think that it's that's a good thing, at least for, for this stage of Fermat's library. Um, and also because some of these projects, you just, if you're coming from a start from a startup framework, you will probably try to try to fit every single idea into something that can change the world within three to five years. And there's just some problems that take longer than that. Right. And so, you know, we were talking about archive and I'm very doubtful that you could grow like archive into what it is today, like within two or three years, no matter how, how much money you throw at it, there's just some things that can take longer, but you need to be able to power through the, the, that, the time that it takes. Um, but if you look at it as, as, okay, this is a company, this is a startup, we have to grow fast, we have to raise money, then, uh, then sometimes you might forego those ideas because of that, um, because they don't very well fit into the the typical startup framework. And so for us, for Mats, it, it's something that we're okay with growing, with having it grow slowly and, and maybe taking many years. And, and and that's why we think it's it's not a bad thing that it is a side project because it makes it much more um, acceptable in a way and uh, that to, to, to be able to be okay with that. That said, I think what happens is if you keep pushing new little features, new little ideas, I feel like there's like certain ideas will just become viral. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Like, and then you just won't be able to help yourself, but it'll revolutionize things. Like, it feels like there needs to be, not needs to be, but there's um, opportunity for viral ideas to mm -hmm. change science. Absolutely. And maybe we don't know what those are yet. It might be a very small kind of thing. It, maybe you don't even know if, should this be a for-profit company doing right. this? That's the Wikipedia question. Yeah. Um, uh, is there, there are a lot of questions, like really fundamental questions about this space um, that we've, we've talked about. I mean, you take Wikipedia and you try to run it as a startup and by now it would have a paywall. You'd be paying nine ninety nine a month yeah. to, to read more than 20 or, articles. I mean, that's, that's one view. Yeah. The other... The ad-driven model. So they rejected the ad-driven model. I don't know if we could, I mean, this is a difficult question. You know, if Archive was supported by ads, hmm. I don't know if that's bad for Archive. If Formas Library was supported by ads, I don't know. I don't, hmm. <laughs> I'm not, it's not trivial to me. I'm, I'm like, I think a lot of people, uh, I'm not against 
advertisements. Mm -hmm. I think ads when done well are really good. I think the problem with Facebook and all the social networks are the way, the lack of transparency around the way they use data and uh, mm -hmm. the lack of control the users have over their data, not the fact that data is being collected and used to, mm -hmm. to sell advertisements. Yeah. It's a lack of transparency, lack of control. If you, if you do a good job of that, I feel like it's really nice way to make stuff free. Yeah, it's like Stack Overflow, right? Yeah, I mean, Stack Overflow. I think they've done a, okay, a good job with that. Uh, even though, as we said, like they're capturing very little of the value that they're putting out there, yeah. right? But but it, it makes it a sustainable company, and and they're providing a lot of. It's a it's a fantastic and very productive community. Let me ask a a ridiculous tangent of a question, Luis. You wrote a paper on uh, on Game of Thrones, Battle of Winterfell, just as a, as a side <laughs> little, I, I'm sorry, I noticed, I'm sure you've done a lot of ridiculous stuff like this. I just noticed that particular one. Uh, by ridiculous, I mean ridiculously awesome. Can you describe <laughs> the uh, the approach in this work, which I believe is a legitimate publication? <laughs> so going back to the original, like uh, when we were talking about the backstory of, of papers and the yeah. importance of that. So this was actually, you know, there was a, uh, when the last season of the, the show was airing, uh, this was a during a company lunch. We there was in in the last season. There's the there's a really big battle against the the forces of evil and the you know uh, the forces of good, and it's called the Battle of Winterfell. And um, in this battle, there are like these two armies, and there's a very particular thing that they have to take into account: is that in the army of dead, like if someone dies in the army of the living. Uh, like that person is going to, you know, be uh, a reborn as a, a soldier in the army of the dead. Yes. And so that was a, an important thing to take into account. Yeah, and the initial conditions, as you specify, it's about a hundred thousand on each side. Exactly. So I was able, I was able to like, based on some images, uh, like on previous episodes, to figure out what was the size of the armies. And so what I want, what we wanted to, what we were theorizing was like, how many soldiers does like a, a soldier on the army of the living has to kill? Uh, in order for them to be able to, dis to destroy the army of the dead without like uh, losing, because every time a, 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 one of the good soldiers dies, going to turn into like the other side, and so it's so I, uh, we we were theorizing that, and and I wrote a, wrote a couple of uh, differential equations, and um, I was able to figure out that based on the, the size of the armies, I think I think was the ratio had to be like one point seven, so it had to kill like one point seven um, soldiers of like the army of the dead in order for them to win the battle. Well, oh, yeah, that's that, that's science. It is it's it's, it's <laughs> most powerful, and this is also somehow a pitch <laughs> for uh, uh, like a hiring pitch in a sense. Like this is the kind of uh, yeah important science you do at lunch. Exactly. <laughs> well, it turned out to be you know as 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 for people that have watched these shows, it's like they know that every time you try try to predict something that is going to happen, it's gonna you're going to fail miserably, and that's what happened. So it was not not at all important. Yeah. For, for, for the show but yeah we ended up like putting that out and there was a lot of people that shared that and i think it was some like elements of the, the of the show the cast of the show that actually retweeted that and shared that that person it was fun i would fun. love if this kind of calculation happened uh like during the making of the show or, or in the, the, you know i love it like in um for example i, I now know um alex garland the director of ex machina mm -hmm. and i love it and he doesn't seem to be some, not many people seem to do this, but I love it when directors and people who wrote the story really think through the technical details. 
Like yeah. whether it's knowing like how things, even if it's science fiction, if you were to try to do this, how would you do this? Uh, like Stephen Wolfram and his son were um, were collaborating with the movie Arrival mm-hmm. in designing the alien language of how you communicate with the aliens. Mm-hmm. Like how would you really have mm-hmm. uh, a math-based language that uh, that could span the alien and uh, being and the human being? So I, I I love it when they have that yeah. kind of rigor. The Martian was also big on that. Like the book in the movie was all about like, can we actually, you know, is this plausible? Can this happen? It was all about that. And that can really bring you in. Like the sometimes the small details. Um, I mean, the, the guy that wrote the Martian book is another book uh, that is also filled with those like things that when you realize that, okay, these are, are grounded in, in science can yeah. just really bring you in. Yeah. Right, the, the, like the, the, he has a book about a colony on the a moon. colony on the moon, and he goes about like all the details that would you know be required about setting up a colony in the moon, yeah. and like things that you wouldn't think about, like the the fact that um, they would you know it's hard to bring like uh, air to the moon, so they so they wouldn't like how how do you make that breedable, that environment breedable? You need to bring oxygen, but like you 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 probably wouldn't be bring nitrogen so what you do is like instead of having a an at, um an, an atmosphere that is 100% oxygen you like decrease the pressure so that you have the same ratio of oxygen on earth but like lowering the pressure here and so like things like water boils at the lower temperature so people would would have coffee and the coffee would be colder like there was a problem in this uh, environment in the moon so mm-hmm. like and these are like small things in the book but I studied physics, so like when I read these, I, I, that throws me into like tangents, and I start researching that. And it's like I really like to read books and and watch movies when they go to that level of detail uh, uh, about I, science. I, yeah, I think Interstellar was one where they also consulted heavily with with a number of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even resulted in, in at a least couple of papers. a couple of papers about like the black hole uh, visualizations and. Um, yeah, but there's even, and there's even more examples of interesting science around like these fantasy. Uh, uh, we were reading at some point like these guys that were uh, trying to figure out if if the Tolkien's Middle Earth, if it was uh, round, if if it was like a, a sphere, yeah. if it was like a flat <laughs> earth, based on the map, and, yeah. based on the map, and some of the references in the uh, in the books, and so uh, yeah, we actually I think we tweeted about that. You can actually, yeah, we did. Based yeah. on the distance between the cities, you can actually prove that uh, that could be like a map of a sphere or like a spheroid, mm-hmm. and and you can actually calculate the radius of that planet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, that's fascinating. But the, there's something about like calculating the number, like exactly the calculation you did for for the Battle of Winterfell, is. Um, something fascinating about that because that's not like being that's very mathematical versus mm-hmm. like grounded in physics mm-hmm. and that's really interesting i mean mm-hmm. that's like injecting mathematics into fantasy I, there, there's there's something um i, I see what magical about that and and that for me that's why i think it's also when you look at things like like uh fermat's last theorem like problems that are very kind of self-contained mm-hmm. and simple to state. Yes. I think like th- th- that's yes. the same with that paper. It's very easy to understand the boundaries of the problem, you know? Um, and and that for me, that's why those 
and that's why math is so appealing and those like problems are also so appealing to the general public it's not that they look simple or that people think that they are easy to like solve but i feel that a lot of the times they are almost intellectually democratic because everyone in, uh, understands the starting point you know you look at formats last theorem everyone understands like is this, this is the the universe of the problem and the same maybe with that paper everyone understands okay these are the starting conditions mm -hmm. and um and and yeah that the fact that it becomes intellectually democratic and i think that's a huge motivation for people and that's why so so many people gravitate towards these like riemann hypotheses or fermat's last theorem or that simple paper which is like just one page it's very simple and i just talked to somebody i don't know if you know who he is jocko willink who is uh, mm -hmm. this person who among many things loves military tactics so he would probably either publish a follow-on paper maybe you guys should collaborate but he would see the fundamental the basic assumptions that you started that paper with as flawed because you know there's like dragons too right there's like like you have to integrate tactics mm -hmm. because not it's not it's not a homogeneous system It's not you. I don't take into account the dragons and like. And he would say tactics fundamentally change the oh, dynamics yeah. of the system. Yeah. And so, like. That's, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, at least from a scientific perspective, he was right. But he never published. So, there you go. Uh, let me ask the most important question. You guys are from Portugal, both? Born yeah. In Portugal? Yeah. Uh, so, who is the greatest soccer player, footballer of all time? <laughs> Yeah, I think we're a, a little bit biased on this topic, but I, yeah. I mean, I, Maradona. <laughs> I, I have, I have a huge, I have a you know tremendous respect for for what. Um, Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> This is the political. <laughs> we can convince you. I, 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 I mean, I have tremendous respect for what Ronaldo has achieved in in his career, and and I think soccer is one of those sports where I think you can get to maybe be one of the best players in the world. We, if you just have like natural talent. And even if you don't put a lot of hard work and discipline into soccer, you can be one of the best players in the world. And I think Ronaldo is kind of like, of course, he's naturally talented, but Cristiano he also... Cristiano Ronaldo, should say, the, the football from Exactly, Portugal. from Portugal. Um, and yeah. and not uh, not the Brazilian in this case. And so, um, and Ronaldo put, like, came from nothing. He is known from being probably one of the hardest working athletes in the game. And and I see that sometimes a lot of these discussions about the best player, a, a lot of people trend, tend to gravitate towards like, um, you know, this person is naturally talented and the other person has to work hard. And so, and so as if it was bad, if he had to work hard to, to be good at something. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, the, I think so many people fall into that trap. And the reason why so many people fall into that trap is because if you're saying that someone is good and achieved a lot of success by working hard as opposed to achieving success because he has some sort of God-given natural talent that you can't explain why the person was born with that. Yeah. What does it tell you about you? It tells you that maybe if you work hard on a lot of fields, you could have uh, could accomplish a lot of great things. And I think that's hard to digest for a lot of people. And, and so in that way, Ronaldo's inspiring that. Uh, I think so. so. So you find hard work inspiring but he's he's way too good looking that's not, maybe <laughs> no. that's the yeah, yeah i don't no, like him probably no i like the part of the hard work and like uh, of, of him being like one of the hardest working athletes in in soccer so he is to you the greatest of all time is he up there is, is he would be number one? okay I, do, 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 do you, do you agree with this thing? Oh, i disagree 
Like, well, I definitely disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like him very much. He works hard. I admire, I admire, you know, um, what like he's an incredible uh, uh, goal scorer, right? Uh-huh. Um, but I, so, so first of all, Leo Messi, and th- there was some confusion because I've kept saying Maradona is my favorite player, but I, I think, I think Leo has surpassed them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, it's Messi, then Maradona, then uh, Pele for me. Mm-hmm, but right. the the reason is is um, there's certain de- aesthetic definitions of beauty that I admire, whether it came by hard work or through God given talent or through anything. I, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me. There's certain aesthetic like genius when I when I see it to me. And uh, especially, it doesn't have to be consistent. It is in the case of Messi, in the case of the Ronaldo, but just even moments of genius, which is where Maradona really shines. It I even if that doesn't translate into like results and goals being scored. Right, right, and that's the challenge. <laughs> like I did that uh, <laughs> <laughs> because that's where people that tell me that Leo Messi's never even on strong teams have led his. Mm-hmm. The, the national team, people as part of the World Cup, right? Mm-hmm. That's really important. And to me, no, it's the moment. Like winning to me was never important. Mm-hmm. What's more important is the moments of genius. And, but you're you're talking to the human story. And um, yeah, Cristiano Ronaldo definitely has a beautiful human story. Yeah, and I think you can't, uh, I, for me, it's hard to decouple those two. Um, I, I don't, I don't just look at you know the the list of achievements, but I like how he got there and how he keeps pushing the boundaries at like almost forty, yeah, and how that sets up an example. Like maybe ten years ago, I wouldn't have ever imagined that like uh, one of the top players in the world could be a top player at like thirty-seven or. But so, and there's an interesting tent. The human story is really important, but like if you look at Ronaldo, he's like he's somebody like kids could aspire to be. But at the same time, I also like Maradona, who like is a is a tragic figure in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's like the you know the drugs, the the temper, mm-hmm. all of those things. That's beautiful too. Like I don't necessarily think to me the first, flaws. The yeah. flaws are beautiful too mm-hmm. in, in in athletes. I don't think you need to be perfect. I agree. Uh, from a personality perspective, those flaws are also beautiful. So, but yeah, there is something about hard work and uh, there's also something about the being an underdog and being able to carry a team uh that's that's an argument for maradona i don't know if you can make that argument for messi and ronaldo either because they've all played on superstar teams for most of their lives mm-hmm. um so i don't know how it, it you know it's it's difficult to know how they would do um when they had to work like did what uh, Maradona had to do to carry a team on his shoulders. True. And Pele did as well, and so depending on the the context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe you could argue that with the Portuguese national team, but they were, we have a good team. Uh, yeah, but maybe what Maradona did with you know Lap- Naples and, and a couple other teams, it's, it seemed it, incredible. It speaks to the beauty of the game that, you know, we're talking about all these different players that have, or especially, you know, if you're comparing well, Messi and Ronaldo that have such different you know styles of play and also even their bodies are so different and 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 but these two very different players can be at the top of the game 
and that's not that's the you, there are not a lot of other sports where you where you have that you know like you, you have kind of a mental image of a basketball player and like the the top basketball players kind of fit that mental image and and they look a certain way and um but for soccer there's some there's it's it's not so much like that and and that's i think that's that's beautiful uh, but that's, that really adds something to the sport well do uh, do you play soccer yourself have you played that in your your life what do you find beautiful about the game yeah i mean it's one of the i'd say it's the biggest sport in portugal and so growing up we played a lot did you see the paper from deep mind i didn't look at it where they're like uh doing some uh analysis on soccer strategy yeah, interesting. i sa i saved that paper uh i haven't read it yet um it's actually i i when i was in college i actually did some research on on applying um machine learning and statistics in sports and in our in our case we're doing it for basketball um but uh we're, we're, what they're effectively trying to do was have you ever watched Moneyball? Like, mm -hmm. yeah, so they're trying to do something similar, to, right? T taking that, in this case, basketball, taking a statistical oh, approach to 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 basketball. Um, the interesting thing there is that baseball is much more about having these discrete events that happen kind of in similar conditions. And so it's easier to take a statistical approach to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas basketball, it's a m much more dynamic game. Uh, it's harder to measure... Um, it's hard to to replicate these conditions, and so you, you you have to think about it in a slightly different way. And so we were doing work on that and working like with, with the Celtics to analyze the 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 data that they had. Like they had these cameras in the in the arena, they were tracking the players, and so you so they have they had a ton of data, but they didn't really know what to do with it. And so we we were doing work on that, and 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 soccer is maybe an even a step further. It's a, it's yeah. right. It's a game where you don't have as many. In, in basketball, you have a lot of field goals, and so you can measure success. Uh, soccer, it's it's right. It's yeah. more of a Poisson process almost, where it's like <laughs> yeah. you, you have a goal, like sure. or two in, in a game. In, in terms of metrics, I wonder if there's a way. And I've actually have thought about this in the past, never coming up with any good solution. If there's a way to definitively say whether it's Messi or Ronaldo, they're the greatest of all time. Like, like honestly, sort of measure. Yeah. Interesting. Like convert the game of soccer into metrics, like you said, baseball. But like those moments of genius, like pass, like uh, you know, if it's just about goals or passes that led mm -hmm. to goals, yeah. that feels like it doesn't capture the genius but, of the play. Yeah. There'll be like you know, like uh, uh, like you kind of do. You have more metrics, for instance, in chess, right? And you can try to understand yeah. how hard of a move uh, yeah. that was. You know, there's exactly. like Bobby Fischer has this move that like that it's kinda, I think it's called the move of the century where. Uh, you have to go so deep into the tree to understand that that was the right yeah. move and you can quantify how hard it was. Uh, yes. So it'd be interesting to try to think of those type of metrics, but say, yeah, for soccer. And for computer instance. vision unlocks some of that for us. That's that's one possibility. I have a cool idea, a computer vision product lex that you could build for soccer. Let's like. go. <laughs> I'm <laughs> taking you, notes. <laughs> if you could detect the ball and like imagine that, um, it seems like, totally doable right now but like if you could detect when the ball enters one of the goals and like just had like um you know a crowd cheering for you when you're playing soccer with your friends every time you score a goal or you had like the the champions league song going on yeah and like having that like you go play soccer with your friends you just turn that on and there's like a computer vision like program analyzing detects the, the ball detects the ball every time there's a goal or like if you miss like there's a you know the fans oh, are reacting yeah. to that 
and then <laughs> should be pretty simple by now. It's like I think there's an opportunity there. It's like yeah. just throwing that. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna go all Start out. But by, by the way, I did. Uh, I've never released. I was thinking of just putting it on GitHub, but I did write exactly that, which is the trackers for the players, uh, for the for the bodies of the player. Is this is the hard part actually? The detection of player bodies and the ball is not hard. What's hard is very like robust tracking through time mm -hmm. of each of those. Mm -hmm. So like, so I've wrote a, tr a track of this pretty damn good. This is this is, is, that, the, is that open source? You open source? I know I've never released it because okay, I because I thought like I need to I, I would. This is the perfection thing because I knew it was going to be like it's going to pull me in, and and it wasn't really that done. Mm -hmm. And so I've never actually been part of a GitHub project where it's like really active development. And I didn't want to make it. I knew there's a non-zero probability that it will become my life for like a half a year. That because <laughs> uh, just how much I love soccer and, and all of those kinds of things, and and ultimately it will be all for just the the joy of analyzing the game, which I'm all for. I remember you also, like one of, in one of the episodes you mentioned that you did also a lot of eye tracking analysis on yes. like Joe Rogan's. Uh, that was the that was the research side of my life. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you have that library, right? You you kind of downloaded all the episodes. Yep. Allegedly. I, and of course I didn't, if you're a lawyer and <laughs> listening to this. No, it is, I, I was listening to the episode where you mentioned that and I was actually, there was something that I I, I might ask you for, for access to that, uh, to like, allegedly sure. that library, uh, but I was doing some, not, not regarding like eye tracking, but I was playing around with um, analyzing the distribution of silences on uh, one of the mm -hmm. Joe Rogan episodes. So like, I did that for the Elon uh, yes. uh, conversation, where it's like, you just take all the silences like after Joe asked the question and Elon responded, and you plot that distribution and like and see how, 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 how that looks like. Yeah, I, th I think there's a huge opportunity, especially with long form podcasts, to do that kind of analysis bigger than Joe. Exactly. But the, it I, has to be a fairly unedited podcast so that you don't yes. cut the silence. So one something. of the benefits I have like have doing this podcast is like the, the what we're recording today is there's individual audio mm -hmm. that being recorded. Makes it so easier. like I have the raw information. Now it's when it's published it's all combined together and individual video feeds. So even when you're listening, which I usually don't I only show one video stream, I I'll know I can, I can track your blinks and so on. Interesting. Um, but, yeah. you know, but ultimately the hope is you, you don't need that raw data because if you don't need the raw data for whatever analysis you're doing, you can then do a huge number of podcasts. Cause there's so, it's quickly yeah. growing now the number, especially comedians. There's uh, quite a few comedians with, with long form podcasts and they have a lot of facial expressions, they have a lot of fun and all those kinds of things. And it's it's prone for analysis. Yeah, and it's, there's so many th interesting things that you can, that, 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 that idea actually sparked because I was watching a, um, um, a Q and A by, by Steve Jobs and it, I think it was at MIT. And then like people, like he did a, a talk there and then the Q and A started and people started asking questions that I was, I was working while listening to it. And like someone asked a question and he goes like on a 20 second silence before answering the question. I like I had to check if the if the video hadn't paused or, or something. And and I was thinking about like like uh, if that is a feature of a person like how long on average you take to respond yes. to a question and if it's like oh, that's it fascinating. has to do with the, like how thoughtful you are and if that changes over time. Um, oh, but it also could be this really fascinating metric because it also could be it's certainly a feature of a person but it's also a function of the question. 
True. Like if you normalize to the person, you can probably infer a bunch of stuff about the question. So it's a nice flag. Like it's a really strong signal, the length of that silence relative to the usual silence they have. So one, the silence is a measure of how thoughtful they are. And two, the particular silence is a measure how thoughtful the question was. Thoughtful the question was. It's really interesting. I I mean, yeah. Yeah. I just analyzed Elon's uh, um, episode, but I think there's like room for exploration there. I feel like the average they for, could do th- for comedians would be like I mean the time would be so small because you're trained to like I would I would th- yeah. think you're reacting to hecklers you're reacting to all sorts <laughs> of things you have to be like so quick maybe, maybe. But, yeah but some of the greatest comedians are very good at sitting in the silence I mean there there's Lucy K they play mm-hmm. with that because mm-hmm. yeah. you you have a rhythm and you, like um, Dave Chappelle a comedian who did uh, Joe's show recently. He has a, especially when he's just having a conversation, he does long pauses. It's kind of cool. Cause it, uh, it, it's one of the ways to have people hang in your word is to play with the pauses, mm-hmm. to play with the silences and the emphasis and like mid sentence. There's a bunch of different things that uh, it'd be interesting to really, really analyze, but still soccer to me is uh, that, that, that <laughs> one's fascinating. It. Just, I just want a conclusive, definitive statement about, cause like there are so many soccer highlights of both Messi and Ronaldo. I just feel like the raw data is there. <laughs> and definitive and decide. Um, cause you don't have that with Pelé and Maradona. Yeah, just <laughs> true. Very yeah, true. But here's a huge amount of high dev data. Then the, the annoying, the difficult thing, and this is really hard for tracking. And this is actually where I kind of gave up well, I didn't really give much effort, but I gave up to, to the, the way that highlights or usually football match uh-huh. are filmed is they switch to camera. So they'll they'll do a different switch of perspective. So you have to, it's a really interesting computer vision problem. When the perspective is switched, you still have a lot of overlap about the players, but the perspective is sufficiently different that you have to like recompute everything. Mm. So I, there there's two ways to solve this. So one, is doing it the full way where you're constantly doing the slam problem. You, you're doing a 3D reconstruction the whole time and projecting into that 3D world. But you could also, there could be some hacks that I wonder like some mm. trick where you can hop, like when the perspective shifts, do a high probability tracking hop from one object to another. But I, I thought, especially in exciting moments when, when, uh, yeah. when you're, passing players, like you're doing a single ball dribble across players and you switch perspective, which is when they often do when you're making a run on goal. If you switch a perspective, it's it feels like that's going to be really tricky to get right uh, automatically. But, but in that case, for instance, I feel like if somebody released that data set where it's like you just have all like these, this data set, a massive data set of all of these games from, from say Ronaldo and Messi, like, and just, you just add that in like, uh, whatever, CSV format and some, some publicly available data set like that. I feel like people would just, there, there would be so many cool things that you could do with it and you just yeah. set it free. And then like the ro- world would like do its thing. And then like interesting things would come out of it. By the way, I have this data set. So the, <laughs> okay. two, the two things I, I've did of this scale uh, is soccer. So it's body pose and ball tracking for soccer. And then um, 
eye tra- it's the pupil tracking and blink tracking for it was Joe Rogan and a few other podcasts that I did. So those are the two data sets I have. Did you analyze any of your podcasts? No, I I think I really started doing this podcast after after doing the, that work and it's difficult to maybe I'd be afraid of what I find. I'm already annoyed with my own voice and video like editing it. Uh, but perhaps that's the honest thing to do. Because uh, one useful thing I, about doing computer vision about myself is like, I know what I was thinking at the time. Mm. So you can start to like connect the particular, the behavioral peculiarities of like the way you blink, the way you squint, the way you close your eyes. Like talking about details, there's, it's like, for example, I just closed my eyes. Is that a blink or no? Mm-hmm. Like. The, figuring that out in terms of timing, in terms of the yeah. blink dynamics is tricky. It's very doable. I, I, I think there's universal laws about what is a blink and what is a closed eye and all those things, plus makeup and eyelashes. I actually um, have annoyingly long eyelashes. So I remember when I was doing a lot of this work, I, I, I would cut off my eyelashes. <laughs> <laughs> when like, when, especially uh, it was funny, like female colleagues were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like those, no, keep the eyelashes. But it, cause it got in the way, made the computer vision a lot more difficult, but. That's super interesting but, topics. But, yeah, but speaking about the <laughs> one, uh, still on the topic of the data sets for sports, there's one um, one paper that, and I actually annotated on Fermat and, and uh, it's it, it was published in the uh, 90s. 90s, I believe, 90s or 80s, I forget. But it, they were, you, the researcher was effectively looking at the hot end phenomena in, okay. in basketball, right? So whether like the fact that you just made a field goal, um, if you know, if on your next attempt, if you're more likely to oh, make yeah. it or not. Um, and, and it was super interesting because I mean, he pulled like, I think a hundred undergrads in, I think from Stanford and Cornell and asking people like, do you, do you think that's, that you have a higher likelihood of making your free throw if you just, just made one? And I think it was like 68, 68% said yes, they, they believe that. And, they, and then he, he looked at the data and this was back in, as I said, like a few decades ago. And so he, I think he had a data set of about, uh, he looked at, at it specifically for free throws mm-hmm. and he had a data set of about 5,000 free throws. And um, and effectively, what he found was that specifically in the case of free throws, he didn't for the aggregate data he didn't find um, that the, he couldn't really spot that correlation, that hot end correlation. So if you made the first one, you weren't more likely to to make the second one. What he did find was that they were just better at the second one because you just got like maybe a tiny practice and you just you attempted once and then. And then you're going to be better at the next one. And then I, I, I then I went and there's a data set on Kaggle that has like six hundred thousand free throws, and I reran the the same computations and 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 confirmed like you can see a very clear pattern that oh, they're just better at their second free throw. Um, that's interesting because I think there's similar like, that kind of analysis is so awesome because I think with tennis they have like uh, like a fault yeah. like a, when you serve they have analysis of like mm. are you most likely to miss the second serve if you miss the first obviously um, yeah th- I think that's the case so that integrates th- th- that's so cool when psychology is converted into metrics in that way and in sports 
it's especially cool because it's such a constrained system that you can really study human psychology because it's repeated, it's constrained, mm-hmm. so many things are controlled, which is something you rarely have in uh, in the wild psychological experiments. So it's cool. Uh, plus, everyone loves it. Like sports is yeah, really cool yeah. to analyze. People uh, actually care about the results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I still think, well, like I, uh, I, and I will definitely publish uh, this work on Messi versus Ronaldo and- I'd love uh, to read uh, it. Objective, uh, fully objective. I'd love to peer review. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, th- this is very true. This is not past peer review. <laughs> um, let me ask sort of um, an a- advice question to uh, to young folks. You've explored a lot of fascinating ideas in your life. Mm-hmm. You've built a startup worked on physics, worked on computer science. What advice would you give to young people today in, in high school, mm-hmm. maybe early college, about life, mm-hmm. about career, about science and mathematics? I remember, like, uh, I read, like, I remember reading that um, Poincaré was once asked by a, um, a French journal about his advice for young people and what was his teaching philosophy. And he said that like one of the most important things that parents should teach their kids is how to be enthusiastic um, in regards to like the mysteries of the world. Mm-hmm. And that he said like striking that balance was actually one of the most important things between like in, in education. You know, you want to have your kids be enthusiastic about the mysteries of the world, but you also don't want to traumatize them. Like yeah. if you really force them into something. And I think like uh, especially if, if you're young, I think you you should be curious. And I think you should ex- explore that curiosity to the fullest, to the point where you even become almost as an expert on that topic. And now, and and you might start with something that it's small, like you might start with, you know, you're interested in numbers and how to factor numbers into primes, and then all of a sudden you go and and you're like lost in number theory, and you discover cryptography, and then all of a sudden you're buying Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I and I think you should do these. Um, you should really try to fulfill this curiosity and you should live in a society that allows you to fulfill this curiosity, which is also important. And I think you should do, the, do these not to get to some sort of status or fame or money, but I think this is the way, this iterative process, I think th- this is the way to find happiness. And uh, and I think this is also allows you to find the meaning f- for your life. Uh, I think it's all about like being curious and being able to fulfill that curiosity and that path to fulfilling that uh, your curiosity. Yeah, the, the the start small and let the fire build is kind of interesting way to think about it. And you never know where you're going to end up. It's it's like for instance, for Mars is just a, a really good example. We started like by doing this as an internal like thing that we did with, in the company and then we started putting it out there and now a lot of people follow it and know about it. And so, um, and you still don't know where Fermat's library is going to end up. Actually, yeah. true, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that would be my piece of advice with very limited experience, of course. But uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I mean, is there something in, from particular, uh, Joao, from the computer science versus physics perspective? Uh, do do you regret not doing physics? Do you regret not doing computer science? Which one is the the wiser, the better human being? This is Messi versus Ronaldo. Um, <laughs> um, those are very. I, I I don't know if you would agree, but they're kind of dis- different disciplines. True. Yeah. Very much so. Um, I actually I actually 
I was, I, I had the question in my mind. I, I, I took physics classes uh, as an undergrad uh, or like besides what I had to take. And um, it's definitely something that I considered at some point. Um, and and that, that, that I, 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 I do feel like later in life, that might be something that I'm not sure if regret is, is the right word, but it's, it's kind of, something that I can imagine in an alternative universe, what would have happened if I, if I gone into physics. Um, I try to think that like, well, it depends on what your path ends up being, but that it's, it's not super important, right? Like exactly what do you decide to major on? Like, I think there's, there's, um, I think Tim Urban, like the, the blogger had a good visualization of this where it's like, you know, like he, he, he has a picture where you have all sorts of paths that you could pursue in your life. And then maybe you're in the middle of it. And so there's maybe some paths that are not accessible to you, but like the, the tree that is still in front of you gives you a lot of optionality. And so- um, There's two lessons to learn from that. Like we have a huge number of options now and probably you're just one to reflect like to try to uh, derive wisdom from the one little path you've taken so far may be flawed because there's all these other paths you could have taken. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's like, uh, so one, it's inspiring that you can take any path now. And two, it's like you, you, the path you've taken so far is just one of many possible ones. Yeah. But, but it does seem that like physics and computer science both open a lot of doors and a lot of different doors. True. It's very interesting. It is. Yeah, I, 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 like in this case, like, and, and especially in, in our case, because I could see the difference. I studied, I, I, did, I went to college in Europe and uh, Joao went to college here in the US. So I could see the difference. And like in the European system is um, more rigid in the sense that when you decide to study physics, you don't have a lot, especially in the early years, you don't have a lot of, um, you can't choose to take like a, a class from like computer science course or something like that. You don't have a lot of freedom to explore in that sense in university, as opposed to here in the US where you have more freedom. And I think, um, I think that's important. I think that's what constitutes, you know, a good kind of educational system is one that gravitates towards the interests of a student as, as you progress. But I think in order for you to do that, you need to explore different areas. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like if I had a chance to take, say, more computer science class when I was in college, I, I would have probably have, uh, have taken those classes. But um, yeah, but I ended up like focusing maybe too, like, too much in physics. And uh, I think here at least my perception is that you can explore more more fields. But there is a kind of, it's funny, but physics can be difficult. So I don't see too many computer science people then ex exploring into physics. It's only, like the one, the not the one, but one of the beneficial things of physics, it feels like it, uh, what was it Rutherford that said like, like basically that physics is the hard thing and everything is easy. Uh, so like there's a certain sense once you've figured out some basic like physics that it's not that you need the tools of physics to understand the other disciplines. It's that you're empowered by having done difficult shit. I mean, the ultimate I think is probably mathematics there. Yeah, true. Uh, so maybe just doing difficult things and proving to yourself that you can do difficult things, whatever those are. That's net positive, I believe. Net positive. Yeah. And I think like I, I before I started a company, I had like I, I worked in on the financial sector for a bit, and like I think 
having a physics background, I was I felt I was not afraid of like learning like f finance things. And I think like when you come from those backgrounds, you are generally not afraid of stepping into other fields and learning about those because um, yeah, I feel you've learned a lot of difficult things and um, yeah, that's a, an added benefit, I believe. This was uh, an incredible conversation, Luis, Joao. We started with, uh, who do we start with? Feynman ended up with Messi and Ronaldo. So this is like the perfect conversation. It's really an honor that you guys would waste all this time with me today. It's, it was really fun. Thanks for thank talking. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Luis and Joao Batala. And thank you to Skiff, Simply Safe, Indeed, NetSuite, and Four Sigmatic. Check them out in the description to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Richard Feynman. Nobody ever figures out what life is all about. And it doesn't matter. Explore the world. Nearly everything is really interesting if you go into it deeply enough. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you next time.